Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Is this being recorded? Yeah. My name, Lou Andreas, is not Lou. Didn't know that. Did, did you? I know I am not perfect. Perfect, huh? You're absolutely perfect. <laughs> That's it. That's great. <laughs> That's it. Hold it, now hold it. A little looser. That's it. Like that. Yeah. You're gonna make it, baby. You're brilliant. That's how I was. Divine. Absolutely divine. Face is bold and stark as found. Enormous eyes. What a dream this is. What I wanted. And how I hate it. Can you explain that? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Daniel Kramer. Greetings, downfall children. Also back with us this week is Mr. Bill Ackerman. You know, I've only come here to get medication. This week, we're looking at the 1970 film from Jerry Schatzberg, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Written by Carol Eastman under the name Adrian Joyce, the film tells the tale of Lou Andrea Sand, a.k.a. Emily Mercine, a model who is being interviewed by her former lover and one of her first photographers, Aaron Reinhardt, about her life. We go back and forth in time, following Lou's life, seeing the titular downfall. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers for this one, kind of once a hard to find movie it's still not that easy to find so if you don't want anything ruined go track down come back and we'll be here now daniel when was the first time you saw a puzzle of a downfall child and what did you think i was a college freshman i was it was either 2003 or 2004 i was essentially um i had to track down a um a vhs version with french uh, hard-coded uh, subtitles i think that was the only one that was available at that time I pretty much immediately began to to steal from it, making my 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 student films at the time when I was in film school. I had a lot of things in it that I that I really uh, found uh, quite quite uh, cool in terms of in terms of cutting. I'm still stealing from it. I, uh, I think today when I'm shooting a movie. I actually just got off of a shoot today, and I. I How about you, Bill? Um, the first time I saw it was actually on YouTube in 2009. Uh, it was broken up into segments. Um, I had been looking for it for a long time because I was a fan of Jerry Schatzberg's uh, Panic Needle Park and Scarecrow. I liked how 
much it reminded me of um, European art films, like it reminded mm. me of Antonioni and, and Rene, but with an American setting. Um, and I have a weakness for new Hollywood films that kind of fit that description, like King of Marvin Gardens or The Conversation or Night Moves, Petulia, like um, films that have an American setting, but kind of that uh, maybe chillier, artier European feel. Also, it reminded me a little bit of uh, certain kind of horror films. Um, I can think of something like Let's Get Jessica to Death, where there's a uh, the uh, account of a traumatized survivor, so there's a, there, there's a, an eeriness to the drama. Also, um, almost reminds me of the kind of films that Kayla Janice talks about in her book House of Psychotic Women. Just mm. that kind of neurotic central character, uh, and you don't really always know what to trust in the narrative. I was fortunate enough to have Jerry Schatzberg send me a copy of this personally. Um, <laughs> when I was running Super Happy Fun, it was kind of a haven for hard-to-find movies. And somehow Mr. Schatzberg got my contact information. And rather than writing to me and saying, how dare you sell some of my movies, which I wasn't at the time. But instead, he's like, oh, here's this movie. I think you'd like it. Go ahead and sell it on your site. He knew it was very hard to find. He knew that people should be seeing it, and at that point, I think it was early 2000s, maybe, he said, okay, well, let's release this thing and put it on the bootleg market. So I was one of the quote-unquote distributors of the film for a little bit, and hopefully the right people saw it, because, uh, yeah, it was tough to find. It still is kind of tough to find. I know there's a French DVD of it out there, and the audio from the trailer that I played in last week's show and this week's show are actually from the French advertisement, that the French trailer for it, because... I imagine there was a U.S. trailer for this film, but it has kind of been lost to the sands of time, as the movie is. I mean, Bill, you mentioned that you watched it on YouTube. I know there are full versions of it out on YouTube, but yet it has yet to get, as far as I know, a proper U.S. release. And I really think that it should. Not only is it such a great slice of 70s cinema, it's right there at the, the beginning of 70s cinema, it's Schatzberg's first film, which is amazing, and it's one of Faye Dunaway's early roles. I mean, she had done uh, Bonnie and Clyde at this point, but it's just amazing. This film just blew my socks off the first time I saw it, and when I rewatched it again yesterday, I just can't believe how well made this film is. Yeah, I just saw it in New York this past week at Metrograph. They're doing a retrospective on Universal Films uh, from the 1970s, and it played to a uh, sold-out audience. So it definitely still has an appeal to people. I don't know why it's never had a uh, home video release in the U.S. Um, A lot of those early 70s Universal titles, like Mila Schwarman's Taking Off is another one, and uh, even... um, Diary of a Mad Housewife, which was kind of successful, it's never really, I mean, I think it had a video cassette release, but a lot of those early 70s, uh, like new Hollywood titles, have had uh, kind of spotty distribution on home video here. Yeah, it feels like one of those films that uh, that uh, the kind of the Ned Tannen uh, operation at the Universal at the time would have produced, because he, that, because that under that auspices of him, that they, uh, Universal bankrolled the last movie, Diary of Mad Housewife, as you said, Silent Running, I think, was one of them, and and taking off. Uh, even though I, 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 it was produced, I guess, by Paul Newman uh, with John Foreman, uh, it was kind of a you know a, a project that that he took under his wing. But yeah, very much of that of that uh, particular slate of pictures, I think, seeing it at at, a, at as a as a 
college uh, freshman. And then I, I was uh, fortunate enough to see it again when I lived in New York back in 2011 or 12, uh, where Jerry Schatzberg was present for a screening of the film at Film Forum. Likewise, a, a sold-out show. It continues to knock my socks off as well. I'm pretty sure it was a VHS. I don't, I don't think you ever dealt in VHS, uh, Mike, at, at, at Super Happy Fun. I think I might have gotten it from... Uh, from the guy at at Pempadelic uh, Wonderland, which is now a long defunct uh, bootleg website. Even though it's not "quote unquote" properly restored, you know it's not probably a 4K transfer or whatever. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous film, and you can see the beautiful cinematography coming out in the in the film, and just every shot is such a, a eye catching, wonderful piece. I mean, especially we start off in the present. And the present, Schatzberg has said that he was modeling this island that Lou lives on kind of after an Andrew Wyeth painting. And you can definitely see that. And you can see kind of the muted colors. The browns are really uh, brought out. And the whites are kind of elevated. And then when we go into the past, we get uh, definitely a different look to it. And then especially during the fashion uh, shoots, we get a third look and we get that look that Schatzberg was probably very familiar with him having a fashion background. So it just feels very authentic when it comes to the fashion shoots. And then I like that we have that the opposite of what you would think where the present should be in sharper focus. But since... Lou is a little bit off these days. The past is in sharper focus than the present seems to be. There's the moment in, in the film where the where the at her wedding she uh, her memory is having dressed in black. There's the that kind of you know obviously you know, one doesn't go to a wedding dressed in black, but I think uh, in listening to the the, the Schatzberg interview that uh, that Michel uh, Simon uh, did for the the French disc. Uh, talking with uh, Schatzberg about uh, subjective me- memory, because the, obviously the the wedding day for the Lou character is not exactly, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, any kind of happy memory. So uh, just kind of questioning the the veracity at a, at a, at a kind of chronic pace of of how uh, truth of what we're seeing. And and I think despite any any kind of uh, fabrication on on Lou's part, I think there's an honesty of uh, of this is actually how she she is remembering this event based on a kind of a subjective impression that she has of of this as a period in her life that was not 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 completely a uh, fond memory the word that kept coming to my mind when we're in the present section when she's being interviewed by her former photographer former lover and uh friend aaron played by barry primus is flighty that's the one word that kept coming to my mind fortunately schatzberg includes a bit very early on to show us that her memories are subjective and that we have an unreliable narrator because she talks about when she got to her first photo shoot how all the men were raping her with their eyes and as she is saying that we're looking around the room and none of the men are even looking at her so it it was a nice kind of signpost for me to say ah okay i shouldn't really be trusting her words maybe i should be trusting what i'm seeing but then at the same time i think this whole film is so subjective both through her narration and then uh through what we're seeing and then also you know it's up to us to decide maybe what's right what's not or just figure that it's somewhere in the middle because there are scenes that play out or bits that play out multiple times there's a, a sh- 
couple shots later on where she ends up with a bruise on her face and you don't know if it was a door hitting her or someone slapping her because you're getting both right in a row. And I love that the way that he handles those things where he's calling into question her memory and our our visuals as to where the truth really lies. Yeah, with that shot in particular, where she's she's hit by the door and then you see her being slapped. I I always interpret that as her rewriting the memory, where we're watching her rewrite the memory. Like I I saw it as the the, the accident with the door is is the reality, but her invention of the of the slap is what she's altering the memory, and we're seeing it happen in real time. But that's how I rate it. But, and and also uh, shaping a kind of a. Um, kind of a, an amorphous uh, chronology because there's that whole scene where they plan, they kind of stop off at that bar and she, she tells uh, Aaron, uh, you know, let's pretend like we don't know each other. And like, we're basically seeing that kind of like, you know, her planning it with him. And then, and then it cuts to that, that point in the, in the plan and in future time and then back and forth and back and forth. So it's, uh, so you, you get the sense that uh, there's a kind of a, how time is somehow being controlled or how event is being controlled or, or, you know, whatnot. It's just a very, it's a very, very, one of the most complex films. I think, I, I think I was originally attracted to it back then at that age, because uh, I was, I was, and uh, very much am into, uh, uh, you know, unusual titles. So the, the, the puzzle of a downfall child was like, you know, almost sounded like a band name at one point. I was like, no, it's kind of nineties band in a way, but you know, but it drew me and I, I was like, Oh wow. Jerry Schatzberg. Cause I had had the old magnetic video VHS of panic and needle park, which was very difficult to track down for a long, long time. And, uh, I got to see it panic when, when it was uh, very hard to find, uh, on the, uh, on, on the video market before it got its DVD release. So I saw that he had directed it and that, that's really, what drew me it and you know as, as i said like i think i i think in a script writing course uh at uh, at my film school i think i you know my first ever steal from from anything was directly from that scene when they're planning and, and then it kind of evolves into this uh into a rape i guess uh that, that really knocked me on on my behind at the time i hadn't seen a scene um, arranged that way it almost reminded me of nick rogue in a in a, in a very profound way it's very Nick Rogue. I was really reminded of bad timing while I was watching this. Just that kind of back and forth through time, the reinvention of things. I mean, even when it comes to that rape, I'm like, is he really raping her? Is this her memory of this? I mean, just because that whole bit is so confused and confusing, what you're talking about, them talking in the car and then talking in the bar and sometimes i don't know if it's him saying the words to her in the bar or if it's him still talking in the car and kind of planning what he's going to say because he's horrible at ad-libbing and coming up with these things <laughs> just it's not a very ideal you know i i know that game that game that you play of like you go in the bar honey and i'll pretend to pick you up kind of thing and he is absolutely awful at it cannot handle it whatsoever and so i'm wondering if that if he was frustrated and that's what led to the rape or if there was a rape or if how this is happening but it's one of those things where it's just like wow this whole scene is confusing to me but it's great at the same time i mean there's another one of her memories that she goes back to is this uh, older man this older famous man that she talks about and 
Aaron asked her about it a few times, and at one point she says, you know, oh yeah, he picked me up when I was 16 and, you know, made love to me and all this, and he said, oh, is that true? And she goes, yes, I was. it's true, I was 16. And then even that ends up being a lie, because a few scenes later, she says, no, I was 15. And we get that over and over again as far as this guy taking her to uh, this kind of deserted area, and she's in the, these uh, weeds, and he's coming over to her. And I like how we don't really see him the first time. We see him more the second time. But I was fooled. What I was coming to say was I was fooled by this because she keeps talking about this older man who seduced her dying in an airplane crash. And throughout her talking about this, we uh, see this car driving and it pulls into an airport. And here I'm thinking that this is the memory, but no, this is her actually getting on a plane with this woman, Pauline. So it kind of plays into uh, Lou's fear of flying. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's a nice way to, to trick me, basically. And they did a great job with that. Yeah, and and, and, that, and the role of Paula is uh, um, one of my favorite actresses, uh, I think, ever. Uh, I mean, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm talking about uh, Vivica Linfors. Pretty juicy supporting role, but around this time, um, her her career was uh, really going more into into you know, independent films and uh, and you know to a large degree. So yeah, her her role in this has uh, um, has been interpreted in a in a variety of ways. The the, the the Pauline character. I was curious about what you guys thought of her as a, as a figure in these proceedings because it's always been. Uh, one of the film's uh, puzzles, if you will, is the true nature of her her relationship to uh, to Faye's character. I saw her as, I guess, kind of a mentor figure, and but at the same time, I wasn't sure how much of what she said was being filtered through Lou's memories, as far as what she's saying about uh, the Roy Scheider character, whether or not you know to trust her, you know. Um, uh, even the, the scene where she's holding her mouth, licking her, her lips. Is that meant to be, you know, in a uh, intimation of uh, le- lesbian attraction? Like it's, right. it's not always clear to me if, and again, if that's all just kind of being uh, filtered through her uh, selective or altered memory of events. But I, I saw her as, you know, not not a villainous character or not an antagonist, but um, maybe just uh, deliberately ambiguous. Yeah, I definitely saw some uh, lesbianism uh, going on in there, especially. The way that she seems jealous of every man that's Mm. in Lou's life. At first, it seems like she's jealous of Lou, like Lou is the new model, which we get later on, a new model kind of coming in and taking Lou's place. But with Pauline, it feels like, you know, oh, you got to be careful with Mark. Oh, you got to be careful with Aaron. Oh, you got to be careful with Dr. Galba. It's like she just seems to be whenever Lou is getting attention, like, no, 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 look at me kind of thing. And that seems to be both at the men, and it also seems to be towards Lou. So that's what I was getting from that. But at the same time, to Bill's point, I wasn't really sure if that's what I'm supposed to be getting or not. Because there's the scene later on when Mark has allegedly uh, hit Lou, and she's at Pauline's, and Pauline is being very... With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Detective, again, could be that thing from Windows where it's just like, no, 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 don't pay attention to these men. Here, I'll take care of you, Talia Shire kind of thing. Or <laughs> it could be, I'm very protective of you because you're my friend. So really, why are you running off with this guy, Mark, who allegedly just hit you? And, and she has no reason to doubt Lou that, you know, she's got a big bruise on her face. Of course, you know, if she says that Mark hit her, Mark hit her. And Lou just completely crumbles and goes off with them. See you later, Pauline. Yeah, it's, it's also, I, I was I was actually uh, about to mention that scene involving uh, um, Roy, Roy Scheider's character having hit her. Uh, it's it's the way that uh, and and again it's the, everything uh, kind of devolves down into a question of, of the filtered reality that we're uh, seeing um, and how how that's being uh, manipulated, how intensely uh, how she kind of lashes out in that in that uh, particular scene. And I'd read a lot because um, over the years when when I mean as you mentioned earlier the the film has been very uh, difficult to track down. In, uh, in the U.S., but uh, whenever I got the opportunity, I would try to find, you know, uh, whatever I could read, any critic, any any scholar whatsoever, you know, that I could I could get my hands on talking about the film. But uh, they, they often brought up the, the notion of uh, of the Pauline characters' uh, uh, lesbianism. So yeah, that's that's kind of why what I was intimating earlier. And because uh, uh, yeah, it's it's rare that I get a chance to talk about this film in depth with with anyone. As, as I said, I'm a huge fan of it. I have to say, I was a little distracted when Vivica Lindfors was on screen for the first few minutes because I just kept saying, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? And then finally, I was like, oh, that's Aunt Bedelia from Creepshow. And then it clicked, and then I was able to let it go. But that accent, the way she speaks and everything, I was just like, oh, I know that voice. And her face was kind of similar, but I was like, I know her as an older person. Where is... Finally, it came to me. I think it's very personal. Uh, th- th- those uh, those periods of lashing out and warning warning Lou against the men. Uh, Linfors was actually a, um, a Warner contract player. I think Jack Warner had brought her over from uh, Sweden, and she had starred opposite uh, Errol Flynn as as the female lead. I think it was The Adventures of Don Juan. And because she had bad mouthed uh, Jack Warner kind of went out on a limb and you know did did things that that weren't exactly conducive to having a long-lasting career in Hollywood she uh, she wound up relegated and I think it was to her benefit as she appeared in um, Morris Engel's uh, weddings and babies which I think is a very, very underrated film she later was in Claudia Wilde's uh, uh, really thriving career in in uh, uh, independent cinema later on but uh, yeah so I think in part of it like looking back at her at, at her biography I think she was uh, drawing on that kind of uh, that pool of uh, resentment in, in, that she had uh, towards uh, men early on in her, her her Hollywood career I might be I might be projecting a bit but yeah that's one one theory I've always liked to float in my own brainscape I guess one thing I wanted to uh, uh, talk about was the um, the technique that they use of having the audio of a scene uh, overlap into the following scene or 
the sound of a new scene begins before the uh, the image catches up with it. Uh, I'm thinking of of a scene like the scene with the castanets, where we get to hear that replayed, so that it changes the meaning of the of the memory that we're seeing with the with the uh, the sex scene. It's like she's trying to avoid it. But what I want to say about that technique, it reminds me of the kind of thing that you mentioned, Nicholas Rogue and bad timing, and I always associate bad timing as Rogue's way of reworking Petulia, which he shot for. Richard Lester, and I know that Carol Eastman worked on an early draft of Petulia, so I'm wondering how much, this is actually something I asked Schatzberg about um, at the screening, was how much of that of that technique was coming from him and how much of that was coming from her. Um, he seemed to imply that a lot of those ideas were coming from Eastman's uh, screenplay, but I, I don't know if that technique comes from uh, from Lester, or if it's you know if they're drawing from Alan Renee, or like the British New Wave films, like John Schlesinger, I think was doing things like that also. But it's it's very rare for an American film uh, that kind of daring use of of sound. Yeah, well, also the that that same year, Catch uh, Twenty Two was uh, was released, and uh, that had the not not you know not by any means the, you know the same, but. Uh, like one scene would end on a line of dialogue, which would be answered at the beginning of the next scene, I guess. And there'd be kind of an overlap there. I think, I think it was just a time that was just uh, pulsing with, uh, with the, with the need to experiment with, uh, with the form of editing uh, in a way that, and, and I, and I really, I mean, I, I just, um, just like two or three weeks ago, I'm shooting a, 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 a new feature right now. Um, I did, I mean, I did a rather shameless, steal of of the castanet scene from puzzle um i was just trying to figure out a way to enliven what was on that what was on the page just a really lifeless kind of thing or, or so i felt it was so uh so i did a with a harmonica and i did a one one little variation on it but yeah as i said i've been taking from this movie for longer than i care to mention and it's probably the probably my one of my biggest idea films from a from a filmmaking standpoint. And I think I, 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 when I met Jerry Schatzberg at the film forum showing back in uh, 2011 or 12, um, I, I let him know that I've, I've you know, I've, I've basically stolen from him probably more than, more than anyone has. There are certain things that neither she nor Aaron want to talk about. Aaron specifically says that he doesn't want to talk about Paris at one point, And she at, at one point is, yeah, she's there. She's talking about atheism. She's talking about Bach. She's playing the castanets. And then she says, I want to hear me play castanets. Can you rewind the tape? He rewinds the tape. Aaron rewinds the tape in the movie and plays it back. And then we're suddenly taken into one of her memories that, I think obviously she doesn't want to talk about, and to your point, all of it is counterpunctual to what she just said on the soundtrack. It is so lovely the way that her discussion of atheism comes back in as almost a voiceover now for this new scene that we're getting, and then the castanet playing, and then the Bach. All of it plays so well into what we're seeing and it is this man who we never really find out at least i couldn't figure out really who he is but at the same time he comes back later on in the story and he seems to be this menacing figure for her 
And uh, I, I'm almost wondering if he is kind of representing that older man who picked her up when she was younger, but at the same time, he, he, he doesn't seem to be played by the same actor. But I like that there is this kind of menace to this, and even to the point where he's kind of mute. At one point, she's holding the phone out the window, trying to get Mark to come over and save her, and she's just like, say something, say something, and, you know, what's your name? And he's not saying anything, and then drives off, even though she's lying to him and uh, to Mark on the the phone and say oh he's in my house right now and it's like no no he's sitting outside in the car you're okay it's all right but great figure of menace and that we have that scene that we don't talk about but get to see and we're privileged to have her memories being shown to us where aaron is kind of left out when it comes to that well we also have the catholic imagery as well which kind of is is contrapuntal to the uh the atheism claim or the, the way that she talks about that in some regards and kind of the, the flashback that she has uh which looks like a catholic school or something where she's praying in front of a kind of in a in a rundown or dilapidated uh you know whatever the the building is and she's praying uh in front of the the virgin mary statue yeah kind of yet another uh contrapuntal use of uh, what well what Lou says and what we see um and then how the how the two kind of uh, conflict and uh, uh undulate against each other i guess in that sense it's uh, that's pretty rich in, in, as well in, in my in my book the uh, the atheism that she's talking about is rooted in a rejection of punishment but it's an ironic rejection because she's the most self-punishing neurotic mm-hmm. perfectionist the entire time. I didn't even catch it the first time I saw it, but she makes a mention of rejecting religion for communism at one point in one of the flashbacks. But then when she's being pursued by the man, she says she's she's being chased because he thinks that she's a communist. And it's like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just an absurd uh, line uh, if you don't catch that. Even if you do catch it, it just seems like such a bizarre excuse for him to come over. I just want to throw out there that Faye Dunaway was 29 years old when she did this role, and the way that they make her look like a schoolgirl, I mean, she isn't completely convincing that she's 14, 15 years old, but they dress her young, she looks so much younger, and then when we're on the island, she doesn't look old by any means, but she is not made up in any way, or at least her makeup makes her look like she's not made up, and just they do such a good job of expressing a a range of ages for this woman who is only 29 years old at the time. I mean, the poster makes her look a lot older, like it kind of splits her down the middle and you know has the older version and the younger version. But I, I think that the use of the makeup and uh, the way that they light her and everything really does a great job. And the way that she plays it, too. You know, she plays younger and she plays older and she plays much more confused and, and jumbled up when she's an older person. Yeah, and it's Adam Hollander shooting, and uh, um, Jerry Schatzberg um, used him on a number of occasions, and, and uh, Frank Perry used him later as well on, on uh, Man on the Swing. It's uh, yeah, it, it is it is uh, um, striking imagery in terms of uh, yeah, and, and in terms of the aging, I I, I I felt the exact same way when I first saw it. I was like, wow, she looks really frigging young in this in this uh, flashback sequence, and yet they they managed to uh, do an, kind of an alternate uh, reflection of that. Uh, when um, she's uh, kind of old, older, slightly more, shall I say, haggardly? I don't know if that's if that's you know, the right the right uh, way to put it. I mean, and uh, Hollander had just come off of uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, which I think was his first film as 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 cinematographer, at least in the U.S. I think he had been recommended by Polanski, 
Um, he, had but, shot Polanski's, um, he had shot Polanski's to lamp. I mean, in terms of the lighting uh, at the beach house and this kind of like dusky feel, I mean, those images like stay with me. I would dare to say, I think I've even maybe had dreams about about that. About that. There's like a middle part of the picture when she's talking about just having moved to the beach house and talking about the the, the Chinaman, the, 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 the fisherman um, who is like a local there and everything and kind of like... Her being alone in that house, that almost feels like an intermission to me in some ways. It's like this, uh, it kind of bisects the movie at a key point when uh, when she's trying to put the, the jumbled pieces uh, back together by getting uh, some type of peace of mind in this, um, you know, kind of removed from the world as is. But uh, and that those particular images in that, in, that, in terms of the light that, that comes through those windows... I know it's, it's very, very potent uh, to me. I, even if I don't have time to look at the that the whole movie, sometimes if I'm if I'm just in the and something about Michael Small's uh, music in that in that scene as well, with uh, almost like a recorder or like a pan flute. I don't know. There's something that really haunts me about that that whole stretch of the film. Yeah, you know, one thing I forget about that mysterious man who is following her around is that when he does see her the second time, or when we see him the second time. He calls her Emily, and now Emily we know is her real name. She tells that to Aaron pretty much right at the beginning of the film. Emily's also the name that she tells Aaron to use when they're playing that pickup game at the bar. So I would not be surprised if she had played that pickup game with this guy and told her, told him that her name was Emily. Like maybe she really did allow him to pick her up. Maybe she is trying to reenact with Aaron this scene of this guy that we see in this voiceless, uh, you know, the voiceover kind of thing. This is uh, no dialogue on his part um, earlier on. So I would not be surprised if that was kind of a, a, a recasting of that particular moment for her and using Emily, her real name, in that situation. I think that that game that is played with the with the bar pickup is is you know it's this kind of psychosexual thing where I think she feels a certain sense of control and that she's controlling this this certain situation and the way things will unfold the way things happen and then I think as 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 is revealed when uh, in this in the rape how it winds up uh, and that she I think she loses that that type of uh, that type of control. And I think, and I think there are various moments in the film where, uh, like, like the whole thing with the toilet seat, for instance, it was, uh, you know, I loved that moment when I first saw it. I did, I couldn't make head or tail of it, but I was like, wow, what a really like wonderful, odd moment where, where you know, as she, and where it's a, it's a moment where Aaron is in the bathroom and he comes out and they're talking, and uh, it's it's that you know. He had he had put the seat back down after having used it, and uh, and she and she asked him, "Well, did you do that?" He goes, um, "Yeah, yeah, I guess I did. I have a wife, and this is what I do." Is like, and she she just kind of goes, "I want it up." And a very very weird like control moments, and I think the scene in terms of the you know the 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 kind of game that's played in the bars when she lo- and then when it cuts back to them at the end, and they're about to go in, into into this kind of uh, the the kind of narrative that they've that in some ways they've predetermined and we kind of know how it, how it ultimately winds up and that that cut back to them in the car after the rape just kind of it always kills me because yeah it's just i don't know it's just uh, um but i think yeah i think there's a there's a thing about uh, loss of control that that i think is is uh one of the 
one of the undercurrents of these uh, these kind of inter interweaved moments, or, or I'm sorry, interwoven moments. Yeah, I was thinking about that toilet scene that you were talking about, and um, the way I read it was that um, I took that as a complaint that tied in with her comments about how men should just take what they want, like how a gesture done out of respect for her uh, is somehow a turnoff, like it's a kind of uh, masochism on her part. That's how it played to me, or even just the fact that she's asking, did your wife train you to do that, like that Mm -hmm. kind of maybe domestication is is uh you know puts her off you know talking about the whole idea of her reenacting things and recasting things with her mind one of the other scenes of this film that i like so much is her redoing a scene from shanghai express with this male model and it's funny as soon as i saw this male model and the way that he was trying to kiss her i was thinking okay i don't think that he's heterosexual and then when they go into this back room and she asks him have you ever been in love with a woman and he says oh yeah marlena dietrich i was just like oh yeah you know like bing 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 there's a huge gay icon right there if he had said judy garland it would have been like yes okay and then it was funny to hear uh Schatzberg talking about that model character in that interview that we were talking about and he was like oh yeah i knew this model and he was gay and i was just like oh okay yeah all right good i'm glad that i picked up on that but i i like that she's recasting that and then that Schatzberg even redoes that scene uses actual footage from Shanghai Express and then redoes it with Faye Dunaway and this actor and it's a really nice uh, way that they cut the two things together. And uh, I like that he he's barely a character, this this male model in here. But he is a great character. Whenever he shows up, I'm most happy to see him. Because he seems to be one of the few people that she feels safe around. Mm-hmm. And there's that wonderful scene where she's basically directing him in the dressing room. In the very or, uh, organic uh, moment, and I and actually recall re- rewinding that scene a number of times because it was so uh, true to like you know directing, getting getting a, a kind of a you know performance out of a dead fish in some sense, and and uh, and kind of the the mechanics of it, you know, while well, you bend down this way, and you remember that scene, and then, and then when they replay it later. Um, and and it just becomes a kind of a, a motif. You have a very uh, solid point on that front. Another motif that runs through this film is the whole idea of Asian people, and I'm still trying to kind of work that one out. It's funny, like, this movie to me speaks to some of Faye Dunaway's roles that are going to be coming up. Like, the whole idea of the fashion photography, like, she kind of, uh, you know, she gets in behind the camera when it comes to Eyes of Laura Mars. And then this whole idea of the Asian people, there's this kind of Asian cast to her when it comes to Chinatown. You know, she, to me, anyway, and I... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm sure that I read this someplace else, and that's why it's in my head. She seems to be representing the other a lot in Chinatown, and there's so many, well, obviously with the name Chinatown, there's a lot of Chinese people inside of Chinatown, the film, and the place. Her there kind of being jealous of this one Asian model and her pulling her eyes back like she is trying mm-hmm. to make her eyes more Asian. And then the whole idea of Mr. Wong, the fisherman, and anime Wong in the movie that she's watching. Again, a hilarious scene of her on the phone and talking about how she's watching this hilarious comedy. And it is anything but <laughs> when when you know the film. And even when you're, you're just watching the bits on television, it's like, no, no, this is heavy melodrama. But she's trying to cast it uh, to Mark as to, you know, come on over. There's this great film on TV. You know, I want to... You know, share this with you. And uh, it seems like there's one other one. Well, Shanghai Express, of course. So it's weird that there are all these like Asian moments to this film, but I'm not really sure exactly where they're coming from and what they're speaking to. There's another one also when she first moves to the island uh, and the one neighbor that is talking to her, at, well, is sitting with her at a table and she's uh, playing with a Chinese box, like the box oh, within yeah. box kind of thing, which it seems like an absurd kind of visual detail, but... Chinese box structure is also, I guess, a kind of narrative device where it's a narrative inside a narrative. So it might be giving views from different perspectives. So it might be symbolically just this little throwaway gag that's commenting on the way the story is being told. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I think that also appears as uh, a random title that that popped in my head is the Saragossa manuscript where there are there are narratives within narratives and kind of a Chinese box uh, uh, structure in that sense. Yeah, that, that's an. I never. I've actually never noticed that. That part because yeah, I remember when it's, it's, it's like on a deck and the, the the woman is with her and and she's kind of telling him about Mr. Wong. Yeah, interesting. When she calls him Chinaman, I just cringe. I was like, uh dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. I know Carol Eastman had, like came from a family that had you know ties to Hollywood before her. Like I guess one of her uncles was a cameraman, but I don't, I couldn't find if if uh, anyone in her family ever worked on any of the Mr. Wong films that uh, Boris oh. Karloff used to do back in the uh, what was it the 1930s? The uh, like a, like a Charlie Chan style detective series. If it's a reference to that or not? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. And I can't remember the name of the guy that played Charlie Chan, but it looked like it was him in that anime. Yeah, Warner Oland, it is him in the... Daughter of the Dragon, I believe. Yeah. Am I right? Did she speak Mandarin at one point? Did Lou speak Mandarin? To the cat. Thank you. Okay. I thought there was that. I was like, didn't she say something? Yeah, the uh, the line (laughs) that she says, I'm worried about the president, got a big laugh. I bet president president being the cat, but uh, right. I don't know. I guess I guess there was a reference to the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in the original script that was cut out, and I don't know if that was meant to be like a uh, a reference to that at some point. I, I don't know, but I mean, it's it's a, it's an odd line. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to read the the uh, original script next time I'm down in LA at the. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library. I should, the, the, normally, uh, I've gone there for research in the past. They, they've had they have a great number of uh, of scripts because you kind of have to wonder with a film that's so kind of uh, fragmentary 
Uh, and so, and and with this kind of Chinese box structure, how it's presented on on a page, I knew people who who knew Carol Eastman, and and uh, her brother was of course Charles Eastman. Everyone always talks like I knew Karen Black, for instance, uh, prior to her, her passing. Karen used to always talk about the genius of Carol Eastman and what a great what a, what how she was one of the most amazing writers. Uh, Carol uh, Karen having been in uh, Five uh, Easy Pieces, which she wrote the same year, I guess. I'm so frigging curious how how it's how this is presented on a page, because I I can imagine Puzzle of a Downfall Child being nothing but a movie in many ways, uh, even though it has wonderful moments of of writing of of just prose and of of dialogue and everything. I would uh, give up uh, something valuable just to have a just to have a, a look at, at how how it's all presented on a page. No, I totally agree. I know that uh, Schatzberg was saying that there was a whole subplot about uh, an abortion that was happening, and which would have been, you know, pretty risky for 1970. And it's, it's interesting too. Like if if I were to, and I'm not going to do this, but if I were to engage in a project of uh, documenting uh, Carol Eastman, I mean, I think that Jack Nicholson would be an invaluable resource for that as well because he was actually in at least three films that she did the script on like the shooting five easy pieces and man, man trouble, trouble yeah. and the fortune and the fortune. oh that's right Thank yeah i forgot about that yeah. one and i'm curious about their working relationship and because nicholson you know he started his career uh, more of a writer than an actor and i I'm always curious, you know, what would have happened had he stuck with that and hearing Monty Hellman talk about some of the early screenplays that they worked on together. And I know that there was one that they worked on about a woman getting an abortion. So that might have been interesting. One film that might have been an influence on this, I'm not sure if I've ever seen it compared with uh, Darling, the John Schlesinger film. And that mm-hmm. also, I think, has an abortion. It also has a, um, doesn't it also begin with a, uh, like a model recounting her story to a man interviewing her, like it has a similar structure. Yeah, I don't know if the um, if when Lou tries to kill herself in Paris and she comes back and says that uh, a certain fact came to light. I don't know if that's right. a reference to the abortion, even though he says it's cut out of the film. I don't know if that's what she's referring to because she talks about the the depression when she's in Paris, like uh, you know, makes mention of like, what if I'm pregnant? So I don't know if that's if that certain mm-hmm. fact that she's referring to was a pregnancy that she terminated. Well, and it's funny that he doesn't want to talk about Paris. Aaron does not want to talk about that. That's the one point, and that's the point too. When he says, "I don't want to talk about that," that is kind of when it comes to light what he is doing with these recordings, trying to basically do what Schatzberg had done, recording these interviews with a model and then turn it into a story, turn it into a film. But Aaron is is playing editor at that point and just wants to cut that entire chapter out. So I wonder if maybe that might have been his. It's also self-reflexive because Schatzberg couldn't afford to take the film to Paris to shoot that scene. And so it's also read, you know, and I think he joked about that in the Q&A I saw. But, yeah, that's also, you know, a case where Aaron can't afford it either. But it's also also a a dodge because he doesn't want to hear about her life at that point. Yeah, and I've heard I've heard uh, Schatzberg interpret the title two ways. One is... uh, um, um, I forget the one interpretation, uh, which I think is it was it was another scene that was cut out involving her. I, I know that one of the the interpretations what had to do with the, with the abortion itself, like the downfall child being the the aborted fetus, and 
and uh, uh, whatnot. And I think he gave that that uh, he provided that uh, explanation the night that that he screened it at Film Forum, if I'm not mistaken, because I because uh, that that was a night that that uh, I think the question I asked is like, can you talk about the the title? which I've been fascinated by for a number of years, even though I've never been able to directly interpret. And I think that's one of the great things about it. But I think one of the, one of the two interpretations, because I've, I've heard him say two different things at different points, uh, one of the interpretations has to do with the, the abortion itself. And I, I know that Carol Eastman did not like the title Puzzle of a Downfall Child, but uh, Jerry, Jerry Schatzberg got his, uh, his way, I guess, uh, eventually. And, and it was kept, uh, essentially, even though... I think what 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 wound up explaining it uh, was left out of the out of the script or on the cutting room floor either either or. Just as a footnote, I um, want to say that the name of that abortion script that Hellman was working on with uh, Nicholson was called Epitaph. I'd forgotten what that was before, and it was supposed to be Roger Corman making that. Would have been another uh, very progressive Roger Corman film. It's funny. I was just watching Corman's World the other night. He was you know, they were talking about the the Intruder with William Shatner. Yeah, I guess it would have been. Along the line of his more um, or art house endeavors, uh, along the along the lines of uh, of that one. There's another uh, little bit of self-reflexive action that just always makes me laugh whenever I see it, and that is, Lou has been keeping a list of photographers that she won't work with anymore, and that she ends up giving to her representative, but she keeps a copy of it on her mirror, and of course, one of the big names on that list written in red bigger than That's all huge, the other yeah, names yeah. on the list yes is Schatzberg so it's nice that that uh, Dunaway had, had written that apparently after they had had an argument on set so this must have been a slightly tumultuous set because she and Schatzberg had gone out for a number of years but by this point they had already broken up so it must have been uh, some interesting uh, baggage that had been uh, probably sitting around on set I always assumed that that was a joke that he had planned, but when I, uh, you know, doing the research on it, I I learned what you had said that uh, Faye Dunaway had. Uh, she mentions it in her autobiography, and I think Jerry Schatzberg also mentions it that it was yeah after the fight. And I always thought it was really funny. You know, I think it's it's one of uh, Dunaway's favorite films of her own. I think today, I think when it was screened at Cannes some years back, uh, she was present, and I think she she mentioned that that it was a film that she was immensely proud of. I know, not the easiest person to, uh, you know, she kind of had a, a, a reputation for, for tempestuousness, uh, which I think is well documented. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think her impression is uh, a damn sight better than, than her opinion of Mommy Dearest, for instance. Yeah, we'll be talking about that one for Mother's Day this year. I'm very excited to, to speak about that one. And she has a reputation. Let's put it that way. Betty Davis on uh, Johnny Carson. Yeah, talking about that years ago. That's, that's... I was going to say, I have a hard time forgetting about her difficult reputation or her eccentric behavior when I watch the film. But actually, that adds to the tragedy of it, because I assume that some of that, the demanding qualities of Lou, like, you know, would you know, pertain to Dunaway herself. Yeah, it's interesting. Her whole delusion of, you know, when she's dealing with her rep and, you know, none of these people will call me anymore. And she's like, well, you gave me this list of all these people that you won't work with. There's nobody left. Basically, there are no photographers that you say that you will work with. And she's like, no, I never did that. I never did that. Look at these names. Yeah. I'd never say, Aaron, you know, get get this name off of here. I'd work with him. I, I would just not work with Falco anymore, the first photographer that she dealt with who such a 
a cheesy joke that Falco's the, Fal- won the, yeah, the, Falcon, the Falcon on yeah. her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's that whole thing when she does work with Aaron again and talk about delusional and talk about absolutely sad as when she gets there an hour early and she's trying to work out this new look with oh, this yeah. horrible wig and this gaudy green eye makeup and it's just so sad she's there listening and hearing what's being said about her in the other room and here we have almost a a little echo like at one point somebody opens up a door and it almost hits her in the face and i'm like oh god this is an echo to what happened with with uh mark before and then jan brady with the wig Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and Marsha Brady with the notes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then the new model comes in and talk about perfect casting. I mean, the woman that, that we only see her for a few seconds here, and I'm sure that if I were to stare at her for longer, the illusion might go away. But this woman's like a spitting image of the young version of Faye Dunaway that comes mm-hmm. in. And it's like, oh, here's the new model. Here's the, the one that's replacing you. Enjoy. You know, it was good working with you. You're too old now and that's the moment for me where Faye Dunaway looks completely haggard. I mean, it really helps that she has that horrible wig and has that terrible eye makeup and a really gaudy dress even. And so when this young, elegant woman comes in, it's just like, yeah, let's let's get you out of here, honey. You don't need to be on set anymore. Well, that, the woman, that the new model, the Asian woman, that's Barbara Carrera, who was yes, later. Yes, I was about Denver. to mention her. Yeah. Never say never again. But am I correct in thinking that she's also the the woman? Like at the, the, you first see her, and she doesn't have any makeup on, and she looks kind of plain. And then uh, Lou has been kind of like generously kind of shows her how to be a model. Is that the same actress? That could be because I, if if so, that makes sense to me because she, in her memory of that event, uh, she's partly responsible for you know, helping the people that would come to replace her. Like she represents the younger model that takes her work, but that model only learned how to become pretty through Lou's assistance. Um, that's how I read it anyway. Well, also a bit of, um, I guess, uh, performance, uh, just, just without cutting, uh, just the kind of subjective reality versus, uh, versus what's going on upstairs when she arrives for that shoot. I think it's that shoot where, where she, she goes, uh, I think the guy asked her, are, are you one of the models? And she goes, I'm Lou Andreas Sand, like, you know, you, you should know who I am. And, and he repeats one of the models, how she presents herself and what she what she believes of herself versus uh, versus the, the world's uh, uh, and, the, and the kind of the the modeling uh, photographer um, in that world and the impression of her there versus what, what exists uh, of her own her self image, I guess. Uh, I always I always like that moment because it's uh, kind of a stinging moment at a, at a point in the movie when, when we know where things are headed and that totally reminds me of either sunset boulevard when the guard doesn't recognize norma desmond or i'm sure there's a moment in mommy dearest it's been a couple months since i've rewatched it where joan might not be recognized for being the star that she is and it's just yeah that that's one of those moments to me of like you know i was somebody and you should know who i am you know so how dare you not know me by name and by reputation it's interesting how much they soft pedaled the drug addiction of the character because 
I guess at this point where she's delusional, she's also doing drugs. And I think when she talks about that list, it feels like the moment in a movie where we would establish that she's on cocaine or something. But when uh, they, you know, they talk about um, he shot me talking about Mark Mm. shooting her with a literal gun, but then it cuts to the needle and it's, it's you know the implication is that she's been shooting up something, but it's never really lingered on it. Right. Just there's just references to her taking medicine or you know medication, but they don't really linger on the on the drug addiction. It's more just the mental deterioration that they focus on. Yeah, and that's I, th- I think that's greatly to its its benefit because how many how many films have we seen about actresses and models who uh, who uh, you know see their downfall their 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 good adamerong uh, through through the use of drugs and these kind of uh, protracted scenes where they where they where we kind of see that decline happen versus a uh, versus a film that uh, instead we can only draw we can only deduce things we can only we can only gather what what we we may based on what is what is on uh, on evidence in the movie itself uh, and and anyway uh, Schatzberg I guess would would cover that uh, that material the, you know, <laughs> the next year yeah of course i'm thinking of things like gia and things like that where it's just like oh yeah yet another model who's going to die or or go crazy because of uh drug uh, addiction and abuse that is a, a beautiful moment of editing though i have to say that whole idea of the flash of the camera and her on the beach looking almost like a scared animal being intercut with the muzzle flash from the gun and then yeah that he shot me it's like oh that's that's really really nice and this whole movie is filled with those moments i mean the real tour de force i think is is coming up when she actually finally does get committed and that whole scene inside of the asylum where it is just this stark white and you don't know what's real and what's not real and that's the whole purpose of it i I love those things where she is talking to one doctor you see him it cuts back to her cuts back and it's a different doctor but it's the same conversation or at least it feels that way and the moment when aaron comes to visit her and you're like well is he really here is he really not here because he comes in and he's wearing an all-white suit everything is completely white and it just blends in with the entire rest of this and then as we are getting this whole sequence playing out the way that we keep cutting back to her. I imagine that's when she was being brought in and just how violent she was, but yet being shown in slow motion. Mm -hmm. So it's this almost like violent poetry to it. And there are scenes where it's, shot in slow motion and i would almost swear that it's also in reverse but i don't think that it is i think it's just very very slow and the way that she's flailing her hair around just is is interesting to watch in slow motion to see the way that her hair moves in hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That way. I mean, I feel like Chris Farley on that uh, um, on the SNL show. Like, uh, Do you remember when he did that? That was really cool. Uh, when I, when I talk about this movie, I feel like I do that sometimes. But uh, I love the moment in the in the uh, in the hospital when the when the doctor says, "Oh no, you're you're not imagining anything. They actually are talking about you." That is wonderful. That is wonderful. <laughs> Taking her to that room, opening yeah. it up, and they're all sitting in there smoking and drinking, and and yeah, all in their white outfits as well. They're all patients at the same institute. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a. I, I think when I first saw it, I laughed out loud. Uh, just like totally unpredictable going in that direction. It's just like, oh, okay, good. They are talking about me. All right, good, fine. Yeah, and, and which, which brings me, I, I'm not sure if you want to talk about this yet, but it brings me to the the, the original critical re- reception of the film, which which for the most part makes no bloody bit of sense to me. It's, it's, I don't know if it was that too ahead of its time. Is this like, It just felt like critics didn't, get it like they were they were dense or something about it i like i'm i'm not sure if you read many of the reviews it got a couple nice write-ups but overall it was just written off which i think is one of the reasons why it's like you know why it's as as uh, obscure as it is and why it's as difficult to locate uh, a copy in the u.s as it is even though i think it's revered in france and in europe and uh, i mean the print that i saw at film forum it was in english without without any subtitles but the title of the film was actually in French, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the rest of the titles were basically in English. But uh, when when uh, when the, when the title of the film came up in the opening credits, it had the French title with uh, "Puzzle of a Downfall Child" in uh, in subtitles below. I'm not sure what that was about. Um, I think that was the only print that that they could actually source at that time. But I know in France, it's it's held up to a higher esteem thanks to I think large part to Michel Simon. But um, I, 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 you know, for the life of me, I cannot understand why it was so disparaged when it when it was released. I think some of it might just be because they knew that Schatzberg was a, a famous photographer, and the fact that the subject matter of his first film was dealing with that world, maybe they just felt like that made it simple for them to dismiss it. I, I don't know, but I mean, or they were put off by the fact that it is so European in feel and. They might feel like because they can maybe spot some of the influences that they, as critics, feel kind of removed from it and want to dismiss it. I, I mean, I'm guessing, but those are some of the. For, I mean, if I if I had to guess, because I think it's a great film, and I don't really understand it. I mean, just as a viewer, why this would be criticized. But I, I was thinking about still photographers turn filmmakers um, while doing research for this and. There's really only a handful I could think of that would fall into the same kind of category as Schatzberg. I'm someone like William Klein, who did uh, Mr. Yeah. Freedom, or Gordon Parks, or even Larry Clark or Robert Frank. But there's not a whole lot if you really would make a list of them. I, I, and I still think that this is one of the only ones that Schatzberg's done that really comments on his old profession. Because that you don't even have any other characters that are dealing with cameras at all until, um, if you ever saw No Small Affair. Oh yeah, yeah. Later, yeah. Mm-hmm. Eighty-four. But, uh, but it's it's the only one that seems to, you know, using this the still images, commenting on his old profession. And after after this one, I mean, all the stylization goes away. And Panic in Needle Park and Scarecrow. I mean, Scarecrow has a stylized visual 
you know, the, the, the camera work is quite beautiful, but otherwise, I mean, the, he's going for kind of gritty realism or, or at least n- not using technique that calls attention to itself. I mean, Puzzle of a Downfall Child is almost kind of an anomaly, you know, in his filmography, if you look at it. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of William Klein as well. And I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Who Are You, Polly? Yeah, I was about to mention, yeah. Yeah, just that kind of uh, send-up of the fashion industry. And I don't know. I mean, this was – Who Are You, Polly Magoo is 1966, but – so it kind of predates uh, Puzzle. But it's done in such a different way. And then I think the key is that it was done in France, that Klein by that point had pretty much written off America and gone to France and made at least three or four films in France, uh, three or four features, I should say. So I think that the French were, you know, they, they were there at the forefront. They're, they're seeing this film in French there. And uh, it's, it's terrible to say that the French get it, but the French definitely got puzzle of a downfall child. And I don't think that too many other people did. And I think it was too easy to say, Oh, look at this fashion photographer making a movie about fashion photography. Oh, Oh gosh, what a stretch! But he's not even making about a fashion photography. He's making about this woman, this poor woman who was picked up and used and basically thrown away, and she had one hell of a ride with this stuff. And and it's just, uh, well, it's not a feel good film by any means. Uh, but at that point in our history in 1970, I think we were okay with not having feel-good films on our screens. Yeah, and, and I think also the reverberating effect of, uh, of, of blow-up uh, on, on, on pop culture as well at, the, at that time. I think, uh, I think maybe, I'm not sure if I'm, uh, if I'm uh, overreaching here, but it might have become the whole world of like high fashion and, and uh, fashion photographers might have become passe, perhaps, or it might have become like, oh, and, you know, another, another uh, copycat, even though, as you said, it has nothing to do or, or very little to do with that fashion photography and, and everything to do with this woman's uh, fractured psyche. But uh, yeah, again, another another possible uh, uh, you know explanation as to how this film got written off at the time. I do love the very end of this film as well. I mean, the the whole idea of, well, her on the beach... And we've had this whole beach theme kind of come back. And you know, she went to Jamaica with Pauline. That was their first uh, shoot together. And one of the earliest things that we get uh, when she and Aaron are, Lou and Aaron are talking, is you know I, I want to um, you know go screaming down the beach. And we get this shot of her with kind of this stark white face running down the beach. And here they are back on the beach again, saying their goodbyes. And she says to him, you know, I'm so glad that we never had an affair. I'm so glad that we never got together like that. And he's like, well, you know, we did. Again, she's recasting things. You know, they just talked about that this afternoon, their time together. But in her mind, it's easier to just completely forget about that. And then it is so sad to see the way that she's kind of walking down the beach, but then we get that still frame of her. And then, yeah, then that goes down the beach. We don't even get the pleasure of seeing her walk all the way down. It just, she's captured as a still image again, just like she was so many times throughout her life. And this time as a, so kind of vague, out of focus figure, which I guess in many ways is appropriate because we, do we know her by the end of the film in any sense at all? uh, You know, let alone at a definitive sense, uh, you know, absolutely not, I would say. And that's, that's the, and, the, and thus it is a puzzle. You, the, also the, the, the um, 
a bit that I've I've always latched onto is the is the mouth uh, close up uh, in the one scene when when uh, Pauline is uh, is talking to her. You know, again, it's like you know, these are the things that get get film students uh, wheels <laughs> turning. Oh, you can do a whole scene on a mouth, just a close up of a mouth with like glossy lipstick. You know, just uh, yeah, really, yeah. Again, knock me on my on my behind that that you could do such you know such things. Mike, you mentioned the shot where she's jogging down the beach with the with the white face makeup, like a uh, like almost like a horror scene. And I'm wondering which shot came first, that scene or the scene of her jogging down the beach, uh, kind of joyfully in Jamaica, in a in the fashion shoot, because it almost feels like you're getting like a nightmare parody version of that happier moment, but you get the nightmare parody first, so it might not even necessarily resonate on the first viewing that you're seeing that same shot kind of mirrored in a uh, f- first as a, as a as a nightmare thing and then you see it as as the moment that it's kind of referencing the happy moment but i don't i don't know it's that's something that i i think on a second watch i i noticed that it's kind of echoing that that same shot there are so many nice echoes. I mean, Daniel, you were just talking about the close-up of the mouth, and that's when we meet her agent. That's the first thing that we see is this close-up of her mouth on the telephone. So it's there are all of these echoes going throughout the film, and whether they're in the past, in the future, or the present. And this is one of those movies, and I, I, I have to admit that I'm very, very fascinated by editing. So I've dealt with a lot of films on the show I think that really push the envelope and this is one of those this is one of those movies where if you're interested in editing I would highly recommend that you check this out and that's why I you know brought up before I, I think you brought up Rogue before and the idea of that fractured time editing I mean that is one of those things where you can go through and kind of try to diagram out where these bits and bobs are happening and it, it, you know, even with Russ Meyer a few weeks ago talking about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and the way that time is is fractured in there, seeing Susan Lake running uh, through a field in her diaphanous nightgown during a montage that you never necessarily see again later on, but you do see another character running down uh, through a field with a diaphanous nightgown. Just it's it's wonderful to see how these filmmakers can put this stuff together and how editing can affect the way that the story is. I mean, I can't imagine trying to watch this puzzle all put together. You know, this is one of those things where we're picking up each piece and we're looking at this puzzle and we're putting them back almost, I don't want to say randomly, but it's the way that the puzzle pieces are being laid down that creates the beauty to it. If you were to line them all up and put this puzzle back together in a chronological way, I don't think I'd be nearly as interested. It's funny you mentioned Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I always think of the the Bentley and the not even a Bentley, and then it cuts to the Bentley, a Bentley, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. another example of bold uh, bold cutting. Uh, but yeah, Rogue. I mean, I saw bad timing uh, before, well before the Criterion was out. Uh, it must have been like Criterion. I think came out in two thousand five or something. Uh, I had gotten, uh, I think, a VHS from Subterranean Cinema, Don Alex. Um, and uh, that, that was one of the many movies to kind of redefine the way that I thought about about cutting. Um, another, others being the last movie, uh, Two for the Road by by Stanley Donnan. Uh, this kind of this kind of, um, kind of non-linear 
fractured time or whatever you want to call it um, was uh, something I tried to mimic in a film that I made in India years ago. Just try to taking pieces, putting them out of time. And, and if you and if you tried to put any of those films together, as you said, in any kind of chronological order, it, it totally kills the wonder of it and the the, the any any kind of mental uh, uh, vigor it would take to to uh, to glean meaning from it. Exactly. You're much more of an engaged audience member, I think, when you are constantly judging each shot and each scene to say which one came before and how does it affect how I'm seeing this by seeing it in this particular order, whether you're doing that consciously or not. Yeah, it's it's uh, I think Evan Lotman was the the editor. He wound up um, he wound up editing a lot for Paul Newman on his uh, on the films that he directed later. I think he worked for Chatsburg. Uh, a number of years after, including um, I've seen I've seen uh, all the the 70s films that he's made, including uh, Sweet Revenge, uh, which is you know really I really um, I'm not sure in, um, if either of you have seen it, but a real come down from uh, Puzzle and from Panic and from uh, Scarecrow. Yeah, so I think it, it was a, it was a, a long term relationship that uh, that that Schatzberg, uh, cultivated with him, uh, and yeah, and and you mentioned. Uh, no small affair, which you know I've seen. It's not bad. Um, I, I don't. I don't think it's great or good. Uh, I think it's entertaining and you know just kind of goes its own way. Uh, and it's interesting to see you know Schatzberg return to kind of a, a photographer character in this case a teenager um, and his using his uh, the form to kind of uh, capture the heart of a of, of you know, the Demi Moore character. But yeah, again a far cry from from Puzzle and from the early films. I think I think with from Sweet Revenge on, it feels like a different filmmaker that is maybe trying to have a more commercial uh, success with something a little bit less heavy. And Joe Tynan is like a you know it's a it's that's an Alan Alda picture, not a bad Alan Alda picture, but it's a. Um, I wish that Bill Conti score weren't in there, but it's a it's a you know it's an Alan Alda picture, not a Schatzberg picture. Yeah, Honeysuckle honey- Rose moments, yeah. you know, again, but you know it's not it doesn't feel like that the original. Schatzberg that that gave us puzzle. You know, the only one that really feels like in the same key, and it's lo- looking at his official site, it's one of the only four films he lists under his filmography is uh, Reunion, the nineteen eighty nine. Eighty nine, yeah, with with Robards. Oh. I haven't seen in the widescreen. There's a there's a shot in, in a scope, I believe. The only thing that uh, that is available is the pan and scan. Yeah, that's the only version I've seen too. But like, that's the only one that has any kind of visual stylization of anything that I've seen post-Scarecrow, anyway. I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, French put that one out in widescreen, because even looking at the IMDb page for Reunion, it's the uh, French box cover. Well, his last film, did it only come out in France, or did it even come out the uh, the day the ponies come back? I've never seen yeah. it. I know it played festivals, but I don't. I can't even find yeah. reviews of it outside of Variety. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, and uh, I've... I've been trying to track it down, or I had been, but I haven't, I haven't had uh, much luck at all. That's another weird one. We're looking at the IMDb for that. The cover is Elcilio del Bronx. So, yeah, the the foreign countries they love them some Jerry Schatzberg, but U.S. not so much. Tragic. Uh, hopefully, the you know whatever this podcast does to you know get more people to see Puzzle. I mean, I would, and I'm on the hopefully on the verge of teaching. Uh, um, uh, a film class uh, coming up soon, and uh, as you know, I think if I were teaching editing or, or a variety of of, uh, of uh, I don't know any, anything in terms of just uh, technique and and whatnot, I would I would show a puzzle in a heartbeat. 
uh, it, it's just one of those films I think that's uh, that that really stands up to kind of any scrutiny, whether it's editing or, or cinematography or constructing a narrative like this is just like I, as I said, I can't imagine Adrian Joyce or uh, Carol Eastman's original screenplay and how that kind of played out on the page. Well, I think you can testify that watching a movie like this when you're a young film student or a young person can really just kind of crack your head open like a walnut and put on all kinds of new ideas. Oh, God, yeah, that's what it did to, <laughs> did to me. I'm, I'm, I'm still recovering, I think, after all these years. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with director Jerry Schatzberg, and the second is with actor Barry Primus. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Hey, you. Yeah, you. Projection booth listener. Come real close. I've got a secret just for you. Valentine's Day doesn't have to be the most annoying celebration of the year now. The wonderful gentlemen of the projection booth have made your Valentine's Day as smooth as satin sheets this year. Simply slide right on over to adamandeve.com where there's over 18,000 adult toys, games, sexy lingerie, and an endless amount of DVDs to please even your naughty tastes. And because you're a projection booth listener, you're going to get 50% off just about any item in the entire store. Plus, you're also going to receive a free romance kit. This romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you both can enjoy. And that's not all. You're even going to receive a free adult DVD to put you both in the mood. Plus, because the projection booth really wanted this Valentine's Day to be completely pain-free, you're even going to get free shipping on your entire order. So come to adamandeve.com, get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code BOOTH at checkout. That's B-O-O-T-H. The projection booth at adamandeve.com. They got your Valentine's Day covered. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the yeah. famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. How did you become a photographer? Well, I was working in the family business. They were furriers and uh, not liking it very much. I think I became attracted to uh, cameras because uh, I would take a two-hour lunch every day, uh, much to my father's chagrin. Uh, I just walk around uh, a couple of retail uh, photographic stores that were near where I worked, uh, Willoughby's and Peerless. And I would just be fascinated by it without thinking very much about it. And then one day I was looking at the New York Times and I saw an ad for a for a what ad for uh, assistant photographer and I didn't know what that was but I called uh, the number and uh, I told this uh, person my uh, situation he laughed a lot at me <laughs> with me and he said but you know come in and we'll see what we can do and I went in to see him and he sent me out uh, I I think on two or three um calls the first one I went to was uh, Lillian Bassman's studio. Her husband, Paul Himmel, was looking for an assistant. and But it was just walking into the studio because I knew nothing about this world. Or that well, and I walked into this studio all black and white with touches of red here and there, you know, and it was just so fantastic to me. It was like falling down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. And... Uh, I had a very nice conversation with Lillian Bassman because Paul was in Europe at the time, but she was interviewing for him. And uh, I think they offered me um, $25. Well, in those days it wasn't unheard of, you know, but uh, I couldn't really take the job because I was uh, married with one child and another one on the way. So I just... um, had to uh, turn the job down. I uh, had an uncle who worked for a uh, diaper service, and if you uh, took their diapers, they would give you a free photograph. Uh, They'd send the photographer around, take a picture of newborn babies, and uh, and give you a free photograph. And then his job was to go to, to deliver the photograph and then talk them into uh, buying many more photographs. So uh, I, went, I went out with him, and uh, I didn't really like what I saw. You know, most of the people that you dealt with were people that didn't have much money. They just had a bunch of kids, you know. They wanted to have pictures of them. So uh, I said to him, well, you know, I'd, I'd rather just do the photography. And he said, well, there's no money in that. And I said, well, what do you mean by no money? He said, well, you know, you get $2 a sitting. I said, yeah, and how many sittings do you get a day? He said, well, they'll give you 
ten sittings a day. I said that's twenty dollars a day. If I work five, six, seven days a week, that's much more than I've been offered. So he said, okay, but it doesn't really work that way. So they showed me how to set up. Uh, so they I had to borrow money from my mother to buy a camera, and I uh, had to get a a screen, a white screen, to put in back of the baby, and then they showed me a few of the tricks and. Uh, photographing babies, because if you notice, a lot of them, they're on their stomach with their arms folded. And uh, they do that because the baby isn't strong enough to uh, unfold the arms. So you get them sort of laying there with their arms folded. A little bit of torture for kids, you know. (laughs) So I started to go out. I get to the first uh, address the first assignment I had and they wouldn't let me in because the baby was sleeping. Next one they wouldn't let me in because the baby was sick and uh, I'd end up doing two sittings a day that wasn't very good so I told my uncle that I, I think I better try to sell so I did and I wasn't very good at it but that's the way I, I existed for about a year and um, then I went back to this uh, same um uh, headhunter, and he sent me out on three more calls. And the first call I went to, uh, I got there. There were three people waiting to speak to the photographer, and we were waiting a while. And the stylist said, "You know, I think the first three ought to go out and have some coffee, and then the next three go out and have some coffee because I don't know when he's coming in." That was uh, for Bill Helburn, and. Uh, they went out, first three went out for coffee, and uh, about two, three minutes after they left, he came in. So I was first on the list. So I had my interview, and he said to me, um, well, I think I'm going to hire you. I don't know why, but uh, maybe I didn't ask for very much money. But, uh, but I left there, and I went out on my regular calls, because most of the places I was uh, trying to sell pictures were out on the island. So I went out and I called in about nine to my wife and she she told me that that he had called and I thought I had lost the job. So I called him early the next morning and I got the job. So that was how I got into photography. There's a long story after that, you know, about how I developed, you know, but uh, that, that that's the beginning of it. Well, how did you make that leap from being a photographer? And I know you're a very successful photographer Mm -hmm. into making movies. One of my favorite uh, models was starting to get a little older. I I was uh, uh, asked, uh, by that time I was working for Vogue and I was asked to do the collection for Vogue. And I thought, well, I'll take her to to Paris to um, do the collection because she was really my favorite model. But Vogue wouldn't uh, let me take her. They said, no, we've, uh, she's getting too old. We've got to get a new young face. I didn't like that idea, you know, the way. Because she was still young enough and beautiful. But, you know, in the model world, I guess uh, in those days, if you got to be in your late 30s, you're too old. Today, if you get in your late 20s, you're too old. But uh, I didn't like that idea. And they didn't really care very much what, what, went on with the uh, how they were destroying people's lives and I noticed that this was not an isolated case it happened with a number of models 
who became alcoholics, and I, I remember one became a homeless person and all that. But uh, just the, our whole story uh, intrigued me, and uh, I had um, I had gone through her uh, breakdowns uh, with her, and uh, you know I helped her to rehabilitate as best we could and things like that. But then I. Um, I decided I didn't know how to tell the story. I wanted to tell the story, and I didn't know how. Because I, I thought of doing it with stills, but and I, and I did take some, but I didn't think it was uh, strong enough. And uh, I um, I was asked by a couple of uh, producers from uh, Hollywood if I would be interested in being a technical advisor on a project they had for ABC, The World's Most Beautiful Women. And I uh, it took me about three seconds to say yes. And I came into New York and I asked them who was directing it. And they said, well, they didn't have a director yet, but uh, they were looking. I said, well, you know, I've been shooting some footage. Uh, maybe I could do it. And they said, well, let us see the footage. They looked at the footage. They showed it to the network and everybody said, okay. So I went to uh, with them to London. There were going to be about five or six portraits uh, or, or uh, essays of uh, women. And uh, the first one was Lady Antonia Fraser. So we went to London to shoot her. And the second one was going to be Queen Circuit of Thailand. And uh, we, we did uh, Antonia. And um, I really liked the experience. And we were waiting for uh, Queen Surrogate to come to London, and uh, she wasn't arriving. And I had an uh, arrangement with these people that if I had work to do back in New York, I would be able to leave and then come back. So I had to get back to New York. And uh, probably uh, shortly after I left, she arrived, the Queen arrived, and uh, they didn't have the time to bring me back. So they they decided to shoot the segment themselves, the two producers, and uh, they were a funny bunch because they were always fighting with one another, and they started fighting, and uh, they each took a segment of the film. They wouldn't give it to the other one, and finally the network canceled them out, so the project was gone. But uh, on my trip back, I, I sort of... Um, liked it so much I was thinking that this is the way I should tell my story if I could ever get it on. So I came back to New York and I started talking to some friends and one of them knew a uh, a writer, a French writer that was very popular in the 40s and he wrote dark material, which my film was, I felt, and uh, I uh, got in touch with him. I talked to him. He was coming to the States. He was going to L.A., but he was going to stop in New York, and he did. Uh, and I felt, well, I, um, you know, I will finance the, uh, the screenplay, the, the first draft of it anyhow. And uh, we made an arrangement. He went out to California, and he wrote a screenplay, the screenplay was not bad, and it had different elements in it, um, uh, where uh, Puzzle doesn't have an abortion, the uh, the other one did, which uh, sort of led to the title, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. 
which was uh, a metaphor for an abortion. And uh, uh, although my my final writer, the one I finally did the screenplay with, Carol, although she wrote a great screenplay, she didn't like the title, but I liked the title so much we kept it. Uh, but uh, I... I really couldn't get along with the writer. Uh, after the first draft, I, I, I read the screenplay, and, uh, which is normal. You have certain uh, changes you'd like to do. Well, he just thought that was absurd, that this no-time director is uh, giving, telling him what changes to make in the screenplay. And after, you know... A few bouts like that, I realized that we wouldn't get along, so I just dumped it and I just moved on. I had another uh, writer uh, do a screenplay for me, and by this time my agent uh, had gotten a a deal with Warner Brothers, and another screenplay was written. I didn't like that at all, and so I just wouldn't even show it to Warner Brothers. And my agents made a deal with um, Paramount. By that time, I had already met uh, Carol Eastman, and I just fell in love with her work. And just it was um, that's the person I wanted to uh, write it. I I I had been talking to Ismail Merchant about producing it, and he was very much involved with it at first. But then he was in India doing uh, film after film, and uh, wasn't doing me any good now so uh, and I told this mile that I, I have this writer I want to move ahead and uh, uh, he said well I'll be there I'll be there you know and he uh, finally I had to tell him that I'm going to move on uh, so uh, we made a deal they made a deal with uh, Paramount and Carol Eastman wrote the screenplay which I loved and uh, which Paramount hated so uh, we had another problem, and uh, I think uh, Paramount thought they were going to get blow up. This blow up is sort of my generation of uh, photographers, you know. And I was very much involved with the English scene at that time, and Antonioni's film was, you know, totally involved with the English scene. But uh, then. Um, my agent said, "Well, we have one more one more chance." Uh, they didn't know what to do, but they had one more uh, hope because now we'd been to a couple of studios already, and uh, we didn't have any results. So he said that they were going to give it to Paul Newman's company and see how they felt about it. And uh, they liked the project. Uh, Joanne had. Uh, a roommate that had the same kind of experience and she really loved the project and actually she was one of the first people I had been thinking of for the part I was going to have an older actress play uh, the majority of it and then, then get younger people to play the uh, the young parts you know but uh, at any rate they liked it and they had a deal with Universal that if they each did a film they could produce something and they decided to produce this, which was great for me. So we um, wrote the screenplay. Uh, well, we worked on the screenplay, and then, um, and tragically, I went up to uh, talk to Paul about the screenplay one day in Connecticut. That was the day after the evening that Sharon Tate was murdered. And Sharon was a good friend of mine, and Jay Sebring was a good friend of uh, 
Joanne and Paul, so it was kind of a, we just had to stop working. We couldn't do anything. It took Carol about 10 months to write the screenplay because uh, she had different blocks. And in that period of time, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, which stopped her from working for a while. And I said, I don't know, let's, let's put it into the screenplay. And, you know, if we don't want it, we'll take it out. And we did. We, she, she wrote it in, then we took it out. But uh, I think she wrote a brilliant screenplay. You had such an amazing cast for that one. How did you kind of gather these folks together for the film? Well, uh, Faye and I had become friends because I photographed Faye uh, on her uh, first film. Was it Hurry Sundown? Was that her first? Uh, it's either The Happening or Hurry Sundown. I think. I, I think, think it was I, The I, Happening. Yeah, uh, and then then she did then she did the other one, and then she did Bonnie and Clyde. But I photographed on her first uh, one for Esquire. And uh, they loved the pictures. She loved the pictures. And uh, when she came back to New York, her press attache, I think it was Marjorie Downey, said, why don't you call Schatzberg and see if he'll do some more pictures? And she did. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And we, I said, let's talk about it. We did. And we became friends. And uh, we did you know, we did a lot of photographs, did cover of um, Newsweek of her and uh, Oh, just a lot, because now she was Bonnie and Clyde, and everybody wanted to photograph her for the costumes in Bonnie and Clyde and all that. We were having dinner one night, and she asked me what I was doing, and I just mentioned that I'd been working on this uh, screenplay, and I told her about it, and she fell in love with the project. And then I started to think, and I said, wow, uh, you know, she could probably play the young and the older part. And um, I just loved the idea of it, and I, you know, proposed it to her, and she jumped on it, you know. So she became part of the project, which was a great help to me, because, uh, you know, she did. Uh, she was a big star at this point. Did I hear that, um, was it the studio? Somebody wasn't a big fan of her looks, thought that she looked odd. Is that true? No, that was the writer. That was the first writer, the French writer. <clears throat> he, uh, I, I, she was going out to California. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. California to do something and say, hey, you know, maybe. It would be good for you to stop by because he was already. They had now become part of the project, and he was writing it. And I said, "Why don't you stop by, talk to meet him, and uh, you know, so he can pick up some of your, of you, and put it into the character too." You know, so uh, she went to meet him, and he called me. Oh no, she's terrible. Her eyes are too close together. And I mean, oh, I mean, I, I couldn't believe what he was saying to me, but of course. He was being very French and stupid, and uh, I, I don't think all the French are stupid, but I married two of them, so, no. And some of the other people that were in there, like Barry Primus, Barry Morse, yeah, Barry Barry, Barry, I had seen um, on a, tele, a television program, and I thought he would be perfect. I had a big problem with that because Sue Mangus was part of our agenting uh, 
crew, you know, and she was trying to push uh, Anthony Perkins for the part. And I just didn't think that she kept pushing and pushing. I said, come on, Sue, uh, Anthony Perkins, a New York Jew, you know, I, I just couldn't see it. But finally, I got my way. We, we had a lot of uh, problems with uh, getting Barry. Uh, they wanted um, options, and uh, and I didn't want Barry to get stuck in with options because I saw what Faye went through with options because she had taken five options with Otto Preminger and with uh, Sam Spiegel and all uh, that, and she had to pay her way out of it. And I didn't want Barry to get into it. But finally, um, we we resolved that it was a, it was a, a long, tedious uh, way to go. And, and Roy, I had just seen, uh, I don't remember what I saw him in, but I just really loved him when I saw him. And, uh, and I think he came to see me, and, uh, and I went with him. And I think the the casting director was, uh, you know, greatly responsible. They're, they're you know, they're... They help tremendously in making films and um, difficult inferences. I just fell in love with her. She was so wonderful. She's a great character. I didn't have an acting background, so it's not for me to say whether uh, I can um, tell that they were great actors. I just know what I like. And at first, that's the way I went. I, I made sure I had a, a really good cameraman so that I didn't have to spend you know, much time with him. If I said I wouldn't like it to be that and that and that, I knew he would understand what I was talking about. So I wanted to spend as much time as I could with the actors. And Faye was very helpful, you know, telling me different things. And But, uh, you know, if they're, if they're pros and if you uh, let them go, you know, um, I don't think directing is necessarily telling them how to act it's it's stopping them from acting too much sometimes you know and that's why you, you stand back there and you direct it in that way how was that transition for you uh, going from stills to motion and it, it didn't seem to bother me too much because i had done uh, maybe about 10 commercials so i was uh, i had been on a set i didn't i didn't i didn't really uh no, I'd have to keep asking my production manager or my first assistant, what does it mean, uh, grip? Uh, what is the first boy, the best boy? Well, you know, they have their uh, names for all the different people that work there. So, you know, I just found that thing. But I, I, I do know that any film, whether you've been doing it for years or you're just the beginner, the better your crew is, the easier it's going to be for you. you know, so and I, had, I had good people. The screenplay, or at least the credits, have Adrian Joyce. Why did uh, Carol Eastman take a, a different well, name for that one? A, that's a psychological thing. You know, I've, I've never really discussed it with her, but I, I think she was uh, sort of hiding behind that name. You know, uh, none of us like to be criticized, and if, <clears throat> if you have a pseudonym uh, and they criticize that, it's not as bad as them criticizing you. And then after she was established with a lot of uh, wonderful credit, you know, uh, she accepted her name and she went back to, uh, you know, using her own name. Now, I know that the film was unavailable for a lot of years, but but when it came out, how was it received? Uh, well, it wasn't received too well here. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it, it was uh, invited to the San Francisco Film Festival where um, 
my mentor, Pierre Rissian, uh, saw it and uh, became a big champion of it. And he, once he saw it, he uh, called the Universalist, said he wanted to represent the film in France. He was a press attaché. But he tells the story when he uh, when he looked at the program, he saw the uh, film listed, and he said, "Oh, another film by a bullshit fashion photographer. I don't even want to see it." And then uh, uh, the day came that it was screening, and he had nothing to do. He, he said, "Well, maybe I'll watch ten minutes of it." And he went, and he got hooked. Fortunately, in the first ten minutes, and he loved it, and uh, he just had had to. Um, meet me and represent. I was already uh, at this point, I think I was uh, starting, or I was shooting Panic in Needle Park and uh, he called me and the first time I met him was while I was shooting Panic in Needle Park but Pierre uh, he, because uh, he's, he's a great um, figure in cinema and there's even been a documentary, Todd McCarthy did a documentary on him uh, because he's discovered so much talent in, in cinema in uh, all different countries, a lot of them in Asian countries, and uh, and the Cannes Film Festival used to send him around the world to look for films for the festival too. But uh, Pierre became a great friend, still is. We still are in touch all the time, and uh, but that uh, fortunately that that kept the film alive somewhat but at, at the same time uh, the executive at uh, Universal showed the film to his friends uh, one evening and, and you know in those Hollywood screenings they're drinking, eating, having fun half the time they're not looking at the screen but uh, there were comments that they didn't understand that, they didn't understand that you know and he started to I uh, get nervous. They wanted me to change uh, the beginning or add something to the beginning that I just didn't <clears throat> see um, a necessity to do. And then he, uh, one time I remember he kept me in a toilet, locked in the toilet with him, talking and talking, trying to convince me that I should change or add something to the beginning. And I said, no, I don't believe it. He said, well, I won't change it unless you um, agree to it. I said, great. And I didn't agree to it, but he changed it anyhow. I told that to Pierre, and Pierre told them that he won't represent the film unless he has the original version of it. And so they made a, a version for uh, Europe and uh, and one for uh, the U.S. In the U.S. version, at the very beginning, they have three, four, maybe five minutes of uh, Barry Primus telling you what the film is about. And uh, I just hated it. I'd cringe every time I'd see it. Fortunately, the film uh, had a long rest. And then when uh, they started to restore the film for uh, classic section of Cannes and for uh, re-release in France and England, they went to my original one because they didn't... That was the first version. So they reproduced the original version even here in the States without knowing that um, that Universal had changed it to um, for the States, you know. So now they don't even know that there is another version. Don't you, don't you tell them.
Well, I do want to ask you how you decided to become an actor. I haven't thought about that in a while. Well, it was a lot of, I came from New York and there was a lot of interest in my house and the theater. The theater, movies, theater. My mother was enamored of the theater. Her, her mother had, had done some work in the Yiddish theater. She was a flourishing theater in New York in the, you know, the 30s, 20s, 30s. And I, I just, uh, you know, I, I think the, the big movies for me at that time, I, I remember From Here to Eternity was a big film with, uh, you know, Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift. But I think the movie that really made me want to be an actor, there was a movie, it was um, it was Body and Soul, Polanski, Abraham Polanski's Body and Soul, directed by Robert Rawson. John Garfield was absolutely thrilling as the fighter in that. You know that movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great movie. And I went to the theater when I was young. I mean, by the time I was, um, I was just a 16, I won a scholarship to the Dramatic Workshop, which was a well-known theatrical school that Marlon Brando actually was, uh, had studied at, I believe. When it was part of the new school for social research. I won a scholarship when I was very young there. So I went to the senior dramatic workshop. It was a junior dramatic workshop, but I guess I was approaching 17 and I won the scholarship. So I went to school during the day, high school, and then at night I went to this place. Done a lot of movies. I did some movies with uh, Robert De Niro and we always laugh about it because he went to the junior dramatic workshop. So I always say to Bobby, you have to defer your more mature actor that I am, that I'm the one who was in the senior one, that you were going to a little junior one. So, I, you know, I, by the time I was 17, I was already doing commercials, which didn't have residuals in those days. I did a thing called 20 Top Tunes. They cut a record, and you have all the great top tunes. You get it for $1.98 or something, except that none of the tunes were by the real recording or by the real people that recorded them. They were just knockoffs. And I did a bunch of commercials, they kicked me out of the school, and I did them, and um, I was doing that. And, and then I started working at Circle in the Square, which had become one of the first big off-Broadway playhouses. And I was 17, I got in a play there with Jose Quintero, who was a wonderful, uh, well-known director, and so forth and so on. And then I started in the theater, and that was it. I was in the theater. Then I got some television shows, like, my first job on film in the television show called Defenders. Yeah. That was a big series with E.G. Marshall. Everybody was, I think my second, I did two shows there. One of them was directed by Franklin Schaffner, who was later on to win an Academy Award for directing Patton. I had a few lines. And I think that show I actually played with Marty Sheen. Marty Sheen and I were part of a gang. And uh, then I did my first movie. Uh, it was a couple of scenes in a movie called The Brotherhood. Brotherhood was directed by a wonderful director, Martin Ritt, you know. It's kind of a pre-Godfather mafia movie, early mafia movie, you know, Kurt Douglas. I kind of floated into it. I, I, I think I wanted to be a pirate and a kind of a pirate first, an airplane pilot, and maybe a baseball player. And then right along the line, I came, I wanted to be an actor. Or I actually wanted to be an entertainer. I played a couple of instruments and sang and danced. I won some talent shows. It all kind of went in that direction, you know. How did you end up getting a puzzle of a downfall child? Now, Faye Dunaway and I were in a, in a, in a company together of actors. It was under Galia Kazan, had a company 
Lincoln Center Repertory Company. And she and I were two of the younger actors in it. Some of the other younger actors were, besides Faye, were John Philip Law, you know, Frank Langella, Clinton Kimbrough, a lot of terrific young actors. Anyway, so we, we got into this company together, and during that time, I was in a play with Kazan, directing. I got a call. I got seen in the play by Arthur Penn, the director, you know? And so Arthur saw me for my first, I mean, big part that he saw. It was a chase. With, you know that movie with Marlon Brando? So he sent me out to Hollywood, and I auditioned with Sam Spiegel. I was apparently going to get it, do it, but I was going to play with a, a, comp, a, by a, a contract player against me. It was going to be um, Spencer Tracy and um, Marlon Brando and... This contract player and me, at least I thought I was going to get it because they tested me twice and I got, they liked me a lot and Arthur used to drive me because I didn't drive in those days. So when I came to LA, he said, you better learn to drive because you're going to do this movie, it looks like. But the contract player was a guy named Robert Redford and he liked my role better than he liked his role. And so for some reason, <laughs> they switched it. So I was out of the picture and Robert Redford played my part. A guy named James Fox played his part. Spencer Tracy, I think, was sick at that time. Okay, so all this is going on, and I'm, I'm, I'm remembering the question how to get in front of the downfall. So during that time, Arthur said to me, you know, I want to have someone play against you who, who's unknown. turned out that the person he used was Jane Fonda, who was not unknown. She was not unknown, but he was looking at that time for an unknown. I said, you know, there's somebody in my company who's going to be a big movie star, and she's very beautiful, and she's done some plays down there. She's in a play that I'm in, and she has a small part. I had the lead in it, but she has a small part, and that was Faye. Now, I I can't swear to this, but I'm pretty sure I might be have been the first person to tell him about Faye Dunaway, who went on to make Bonnie and Clyde, you know? I think I told Faye that. I said, you know, I met with Arthur Penn, who I don't know if she knew who that was at that time. I also sent it to my agent, by the way. Remember that? Now, Eddie Bondi, great agent. Who didn't take her? <laughs> so I think what happened, and then, you know, and then what happened, she made Bonnie and Clyde. And of course, you know, it was great. She was wonderful. The movie was one of the great movies, of, you know, of that time. And, and it's sensational. Jerry Schatzberg, who directed the movie, was a photographer, you know, high fashion photographer who was famous for not only making pictures of models, but he also set out scenes for them. So it wasn't just them in the park. It was them in the park getting married or them in the park, you know, wandering, uh, going on a picnic. So you could tell from his pictures that, you know, he was telling a story. And I think he's one of the first people to do that. And he was, a very good, and he was going with Faye at some point. So what happened is I was in this play called Huey Huey, which I did. Joe Papp directed it. And I replaced Al Pacino, which is... That poor guy, what happened to him, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, he got let go, which is silly, but nothing happened to him afterwards. <laughs> poor Al. So Jerry saw me in the television, a Sunday television uh, show that showed scenes from the play, and he said, God, he looks like the guy I want for this movie. And I think he mentioned it to say, and she said, Barry, I know Barry, you know? He's great. He'd be terrific in it. I don't know if it's true. It's kind of poetic. Maybe she was thinking, oh, I, I, he might have mentioned me to Arthur, and now I'm going to pay. Whatever it was, I saw Faye uh, afterwards on the street or whatever it is, and, we, uh, and she told me something about Jerry's going to call you or this and that. 
So that's how I got it. I got it from Faye and, and Jerry. That's how I got the part. And she was wonderful in the movie. She was wonderful in that movie. It's a movie that was written by, you know, the same writer who wrote Five Easy Pieces, Carol Eastman. She went under a stage name, for the, a screen name for that name. I don't know why, but yeah, she wrote it. Yeah, she was batting a, a thousand there for a while. She also did the shooting, which I love a lot. Yeah, I used to see her a lot at a restaurant out here called Dan Thomas, and I liked her a lot. And she passed away young. She was part of a young, hip group of people out here. Jack Nicholson being another one. I mean, she was part of that group. It was, of course, sensational in Five Easy Pieces. So Jerry had had this story on his mind for a long time, and I believe that he knew the model. He knew the woman who he had had this story done from. It was very nice to be with Jerry because Jerry was a good director, and even though it was his first movie, he had a lot of common sense already, you know, maybe because of what he had done with his pictures. So he had me go and work. This is a movie about photography and, and he had me go work as an assistant to a couple of the big photographers. So I would learn how to do that. And, um, Scobulo, you know, he was a very famous photographers at that time. I didn't work, go work for him, but I went to work for, a, I went to work. I mean, I went to hang out and to try to take my, I tried to make my, you know, try to take some pictures myself and stuff like that. Just to get the feeling of the place. But then Jerry also showed me where the photographers made, got their suits made. And they were a big deal in those days, you know, kind of. I, I got their shirts made in a certain place. And um, he used to take me to Elaine's. That was a big hangout. I don't know if Elaine's is around. It isn't around. I think it's, I think she she passed away. But I think that, and it was a kind of, you know, real New York joint. Unlike 88th Street, 89th Street, and Woody Allen would be there. And I remember that Jerry didn't, you know, Jerry was trying to get some knowledge about filmmaking. Uh, so we would go up there, and uh, and uh, several times we had dinner with Roman Polanski, who was advising Jerry who to get in the movie, you know, in terms of crews and give him advice and things like that. Charming. He was very charming. Roman, you know. So, um... So it was a lot of fun getting prepared for the movie, you know, and then you know, and then we shot it. How was your experience on the shoot? Well, it was hectic, to say the least, for me, because it was my first movie. I had done one movie before, The Brotherhood, I told you. I only had a few days on it, but this was a big part. And um, I really had no understanding of film, none. Uh, the guy who shot this is a well-known cinematographer who was the, I'm going to be wrong, the operator or the DP on Midnight Cowboy. Adam Hollander shot Puzzle. And Adam Hollander, you know, wanted it to be very beautiful, and I did not know about marks on film very well. So I kept stepping out of the shot. You know, I didn't really understand it. And also, one of the great moments is the beginning of the movie, you know, is classic, where the two leads come together, and and, and the last scene of the movie is, a replay, you know, they get together and he says to her, you know, after all we've done together for me to say goodbye to you on this island, after all we've, you know, the story is a guy visits this, this, uh, you know, a, a model who he's had a, a love, been in love with all his life on her and where and, she's living on an island, I think, in Long Island. And I think it was supposed to be on an island. No, it might have been too long, a Long Island for Long Island, but so the whole movie had played, and what is the first scene you shot? <clears throat> it's got to be classic. Of course, like one of the first scenes. 
Of course, what was it? Well, after all we've been through. <laughs> so, you know, a classic thing where you have to play the last scene first. Well, I remember it very well. Jerry would laugh at this, I'm sure. I was on the sand with Faye, and we had been friends for well, we've been friends for a while, five or six, five or six years. But good friends, I mean, pretty good friends, because we've been in a company of actors together, and been in plays together, trained together. But nevertheless, we were on the beach in my lines, and I'm with her, and I'm saying you know, these lines goodbye, and it's all we've been through. And I'm thinking, what the? I don't know what we've been through exactly, because you know it's not a play. We haven't played it. Got to imagine it. But I couldn't see the camera anywhere. I said, Jesus. Oh, she said, so she started acting and she was talking to me, and, you know, and acting a mile a minute, you know, like, like she's supposed to. And I was just sort of like rehearsing and just saying the lines, like, what, why are we doing it this way? Why we, there's nobody around. Well, of course, the camera was on a long lens, you know, very far away. It'd be very soft. He wanted it very soft framed. And very, very far. And so they, of course, the scene is in close up when you see it. It's the last scene of the movie. And I'm okay in it because I'm hardly acting, which is what you want to do on film, you know, compared to the stage work. There's not that effort there. So that was, you know, was hectic for me. It was also hectic because in order to get the part, I had a sign with um, Paul Newman and John Foreman's company. I didn't want to sign a contract. I, I didn't like contracts, but somehow, I had to sign this contract. Uh, I didn't want to do it. And, I kept, and finally, I appealed to Faye, and she said, okay, I'll tell you. So finally, they let me off the hook, and um, I did it, and I don't know how smart it was to insisted on that, but I, just the idea of somebody kind of like, quote, owning you, or that was my idea of what it was about. You know, it was only, how old was I? 28, 27. I didn't want to do that, but... So Paul Newman would come down all the time. He would fly in his helicopter and watch the shooting. And, of course, having Paul, who was such a big star, you know, there on the set made me nervous. And, and we were living in a motel out in Amagansett. And I couldn't sleep very well at night. And um, I get some sleeping aids from Faye, which then left me with a hangover the next day, you know. So all all this about acting it, you know, five in the morning, six in the morning, getting up, having to start to talk, a moat by eight o'clock in the morning, you know, was completely foreign to a person who'd been spending his entire time going to the theater at eight o'clock and then afterwards going to a restaurant or a bar and going to bed at three in the morning and getting up at 11, you know, at 12. So that was my idea of, of what acting was. You didn't go and you couldn't, you know, even the thought of acting it. Eight o'clock in the morning was mind blowing to me. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> I don't like that. I like night shoots in a way. Yeah. It was such a great cast in the film. I mean, Vivica, yeah, Vivica, yeah. Vivica lived up the street from me. We were both members of the actor's studio. Her husband was George Tobias, a wonderful playwright from Germany, maybe Austria, I think Germany, though. And uh, she was a great Swedish beauty. And Roy Scheider. Uh, had been, uh, believe it or not, an understudy in the same company with uh, Faye and I. He understudied me. And he came He came in for an audition, and Faye and I were there that day rehearsing. We saw Roy, and as soon as we spotted Roy, we went over to Jerry and said, hey, use him, use him. He's, he's a friend of ours. So that Roy got his first job that way. That's how that happened. I don't remember who else was there. Barry Moss, English actor, right? Right. 
very good. And and um, what I liked about the film was it had a really European feeling about it. Now that you look back on it, you know, played it in the cinema check in New York last year or the year before. My wife went to see it, and she said it really had a feeling of, you know, it was at that time, you know, kind of a new wave American movie. You know, the way it was cut, I think, the way it looked, the way it jumped in logic. It was it had an experimental feel about it, you know? Yeah, which is one of the reasons I like it so much. I think Faye has been quoted as saying that it's one of her favorite films. I mean, I mean, one of her very favorite films. I think because, you know, Faye knew that world very well, too. High fashion. I don't think there's a better movie about high fashion, by the way, that I've ever seen. I mean, it's so accurate. I mean, the way it looks, isn't it gorgeous? It's very, it's first time out, you know, it's pretty hard to do. I'll tell you, this is really a great story that I often tell people, who knows who's right, who's wrong, who's right. The day that movie opened, or one of the days that movie opened, uh, Al Pacino was, stand, was sitting in a, having a drink, and he spotted me, or I spotted him, and I was in the street. Now, I don't think, I think Al was already involved. I had already made Panic and Needle Park with Jerry. I'm not sure. Well, maybe he's working on The Godfather. I don't know. I don't remember. But Al said, he's Barry. I saw, I went to the movies yesterday or today, and I saw Puzzle. It just opened, you know, and I, and he was up for it too, I think, at one time. He wanted, he was thinking about it, whatever. I said, oh, yeah? He said, what's the matter with you? Why didn't you make more choices? It just seemed you were very passive in the movie, you know? And you didn't do enough, you know? You were just sort of there, and you got to make more active. And I said, wow, Al is such a good actor. And, you know, I knew him from the actor's studio, which was very active at that time, you know? A lot of wonderful actors in it, you know? I said, Jesus, oh, that was, that was painful. I wonder why I'm Al. Al, I thought, I guess he's just being a comrade, and he's expressing how he really felt, you know? And trying to be helpful and saying, why did I make my choice? Well, maybe I didn't, you know. Well, that night, or two nights, I think it was the same night, Elaine May was making a movie called Mikey and Nikki with John Cassavetes. Well, John couldn't come out to, to rehearse. He was working. So Elaine May, who I knew, asked me if I would replace John and improvise with Peter Falk. So I did. I went to the house. She lived on Riverside Drive. We started rehearsal at like 11 at night. Elaine liked to rehearse very late at night, send her husband out for pizza, and we would go. She would follow us around, Peter and I, as we improvised. Sometimes she would go into the closet to not, not get in our way, which was funny. Anyhow, she met, so I hadn't met Peter before. I hadn't. I went to the house. She lived in a brownstone, I don't know, maybe with the 70s. As I say, we used to rehearse late at night, and John couldn't come out. So she wanted me to just improvise situations that she could write them, you know, and just because John couldn't come. Well, she introduced me to Peter. She said, Peter's Barry, you know, Barry Primus. We worked together at the Compass Theater in St. Louis. She was, she was my director for a short time. And the Compass was like a pre-Second City group. And uh, I was there just as Mike Nichols left for New York. They needed somebody to fill in, and I came into St. Louis to work with her. <laughs> Replace Mike. And um, he said, oh, yeah, this is... So Peter said... Oh my God, I just saw you in a movie today, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. I said, Oh, you myself. Oh my God, he's going to tell me something like he didn't like me. He said, I loved it. I loved it. You didn't do anything. I love that. He said, I mean, did you see it, Elaine? She said, Not. He said, You got to see it. You know, it's just wonderful the way he leaves himself alone. It's so simple. It's so, it's perfect for that movie. <laughs> so I thought, there it is. The same day, two very good actors giving me their 
And I always remember that. It's like, well, you never know. I haven't seen it in a while. I got to make my own judgment one of these days. <laughs> How is that going back and seeing yourself in some of these older performances? Well, I am. My wife said it holds up. It worked. I, I, you know, she said it worked. And and um, I went to a coach during it, Walt Whitcover, because you can't expect a director really to help you. And it was complicated for me. I didn't really. I wanted to have something going because I really didn't understand the technical class. I went to somebody who had helped me before, and we talked it out, this and that. I don't think I saw it as very theatrical. You know, I think I saw it as very simple, like Jerry was. Jerry is a fairly understated fellow, and that's what Al picked up. And it was a little difficult to be making love to Faye while Jerry was directing us because he had been her boyfriend for a long time. That was funny. It was a great experience, and and uh, uh, I don't think the movie was a huge hit, but it was in Europe, and I don't know if you know, it played for a long, long time, a year and a half ago, again in Paris, it opened up. They had a reopening of it, uh, so they really like it, and I have a feeling it will somehow continue to uh, burn its way into uh, film history in some way, because of Jerry, and I like him so much as a director, too. You know, he's a really good guy to work with and had a lot of integrity. He meant what he was doing, you know, so I, I like that. I haven't seen Faye in a long time. I haven't seen her. Have you seen her in the movie lately? I remember for a little while she was, uh, she did a role on CSI mm -hmm. and I'm trying to remember what the last thing that I saw her uh -huh. uh, in, but yeah, I was seeing her pop up on television quite a bit. Well, she's a great, she's a great person. I, I used to, she lived in a building on uh, on West End. Uh, she lived in a building on Central Park West. And she invited me to the party for Bonnie and Clyde. And I went to that party. And it was Benson, right? That's who wrote it. Benson and uh, Robert. And so I remember being invited by Faye and Julie, my wife, and I went to a party. And, you know, Pollock was there, who I know, you know, um, you know Michael Pollard and Estelle Parsons. Faye was there. I don't know if Warren Beatty was there, but and probably uh, Arthur was there. It was very exciting. I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I, I, uh, I, uh, Gene Hackman was there. So, but I had a feeling that they were all very excited about it. But it's ironic, you know, because I went to that, and then you know, a few years later, there I was, you know, year, you know, playing with Faye. So it just goes to show that we were good friends long before that. You know what I mean? It's very nice. It was very nice. Very, very nice. I hope she's... I haven't seen her in a while. I saw her one day on the street, and we waved at each other, but she was in a car. I think she's also directing a little bit, too. She's a wonderful, wonderful talent. And it was the most beautiful girl in the world, but sure. Absolutely. Everyone knew in this class we were in, we used to say, why is she in this class? Why didn't she just go straight out to Hollywood and become a big star? Why is she doing all these exercises? She doesn't have to do them. Look at her. Only dogs like us have to work this hard. We all, I mean, we all know he's going to do a big, big, big movie star. Big. All right, we are back, and we were talking about Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Now, I'm trying to remember, Bill, was it you that brought up the whole idea of the play-it-as-it-lays kind of parallels? The first time I saw Puzzle of a Downfall Child, actually, the person that had uploaded it to YouTube had uploaded that 
and played as it lays as the two films that they had put on YouTube. So that was the first time I really was thinking of them in the same light. But I and, and both were films I had been looking for because they had very uh, spotty home video uh, distribution. I don't think either one of them had a even a VHS release. Maybe played as it lays did, no, but no, it, didn't. Um, it didn't. Okay, no, it didn't. I, yeah, because I have a bootleg of it from I think the Sundance Channel yes. uh, screening that it had. But um, yeah, I, I think that they both are dealing with the. Uh, you know the traumatic, uh, like recounting of a of, of a female character, and the uh, they, they're both dealing with, I guess, like a kind of a glamour, but like a, a, a cheap, not not cheap, but like a uh, like a like a, a, a downbeat glamour world. I mean, uh, plays at lasers is Hollywood, and puzzle is is the fashion world. But even the uh, relationship with the with the writers, because. Carol Eastman was friendly with Joan Didion, who, you know, uh, with, with, with Dunn, they wrote uh, Panic for Schatzberg, but they also wrote the screenplay for Frank Perry's uh, uh, Play As It Lays. And I don't know, there's just, there's just a lot of um, things that connect them. There. I mean, Play As It Lays, I think, feels a little bit more um, like it's on tranquilizers compared to Puzzle of a Downfall Child, even though the editing is even more rapid. It's a lot more abrasive cutting style but the character is a lot less intense as that uh tuesday well it's a lot less intense and fade done away yeah i watched that today and i can definitely see what you're talking about when it comes to that and this one is almost like if that abortion subplot hadn't been cut out of puzzle or maybe it was cut out of puzzle and it was kind of injected into this because there is a major abortion plot that is happening with played as it lays and there's yeah institutionalization and all these things. It, it's it, both of these are very challenging films, and you're right; they're not exactly the same worlds that they're dealing with, acting versus modeling. But this would make a great double feature with Puzzle. I think that both of these films are really kind of uh, if they're not cut from the same cloth, they're coming from at least the same fabric store. I, I'm very intrigued, and uh, um, I mean, I, I love uh, looking at at Frank Perry's films as a director. Um, it's probably stylistically uh, played played as it lays is probably his boldest effort. I want to say, yeah, I can't I can't think of one that that is even a close uh, second. I mean, am I? I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, I mean, sure. yeah. I mean, last summer has some quick cutting, but it's not remotely in the same ballpark. I mean, there's experimental scenes in like uh, like dream sequence type things in like David and Lisa, but um, yeah, Planet as a Lays is a lot more stylistically daring. I think it's the first one he did after uh, ending his uh, partnership Doc. with uh, Eleanor Perry. Eleanor Perry. So it's yeah, I think yeah. he might have maybe something to prove. He made Doc after after well, so, so Diary of a Mad Housewife was their last film together, and then uh, they they divorced, and then a year after that, um, Frank Perry made uh, Doc with uh, Faye Dunaway and uh, Stacy Keach uh, without Eleanor. Uh, that was his first uh, non non Eleanor Perry film, and then and then he did Play as It Lays the year after. Which was uh, 1972. I don't know if it's meant to be some kind of answer to Puzzle of the Downfall Child on a on a screenplay level or not, or if it's just a coincidence that they have so many shared elements. It would not, and they're, and they're both Universal films, aren't they? Yes. They yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, it's being shown as part of the, the the Universal series at Metrograph. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it'll have actually screened by the time this episode airs, but I will yeah. hopefully have been at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I attended the. I was it was it screened at an, uh, Anthology Film Archives uh, years back. I had seen it on the on the Sundance broadcast. I actually taped it myself. Uh, I think it aired around like two thousand uh, two thousand six or seven. I think, um, but. Um, yeah, and then I, but seeing it on a print, uh, I think anthology screened it sometime, uh, like years later. Um, I I need to re- revisit it, but uh, yeah, I I I recall thinking, uh, I think I posted on on my Facebook page that uh, that you know the perfect double feature would be puzzle and uh, and play it as it lays. Um, just in terms of, uh, I mean, I remember, yeah, there are certain, um, yeah, again. Similar cutting, but uh, very, very, but uh, and very close cousins, but very, very different as well. Uh, and also for some very potent images. I, I, I have a memory of uh, Tuesday Weld going down the road and shooting the road signs from from, from her her convertible. Uh, that's an image that 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 really is potent uh, for me. Yeah, and uh, also the the kind of the frantic climactic death scene of, of Anthony Perkins's character when I, I just remember Tuesday while shouting at the top of her lungs um, and uh, kind of mourning that and then but the, the also kind of echoing the the final movement of uh, puzzle in some ways um, where she were just you know that, that kind of loss of uh, of control and loss of uh, loss of an you know and in, one's index for how to how to uh, experience the world in a with a healthy mind yeah, I, 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 I do need to revisit uh, Play It As It Lays soon, though. And not that, not that this is how anyone should experience them for the first time, but uh, Puzzle of the Downfall Child, the French DVD transfer, and Play It As It Lays, the Sundance Channel uh, transfer, are both on YouTube right now in their entirety. So you could actually program a double feature that way at home, at least as of today. I don't know when they'll get pulled again, but... Sundance version is what I watched because it it was uh, it had the little watermark yeah. in the corner. It's rough. It, that's a rough looking print, man. <laughs> they really <laughs> they need to do a restoration of that thing because it was just like so muddy. But then again, I'm watching it from a YouTube copy, so maybe it looked better when I they think, showed it. Yeah, originally, it looked but... marginally better than than I think the version that's on uh, YouTube. Because I remember around that time they were also like. Sundance was also like also randomly showing a bunch of other Universal pictures uh, around that time, like uh, uh, in search of uh, Gregory with uh, Michael Sarazen and Julie Christie. Uh, again, a random movie to appear on that channel. I guess they must have licensed a bunch of titles. That and the Gong Show movie appeared around that time on that channel <laughs> as well. That was the first time I, I, I saw the Gong Show movie was on was on the Sundance channel back then. Speaking of things that were like on uh, on YouTube, I was looking for the original opening of a puzzle, or not the original, but the ver- but the opening that was uh, forced on Schatzberg. The original opening. Do you, have you either of you seen the, the the thing I'm talking about that was added by Universal and then was removed when it was restored by the French? Well, that, you, you, I haven't seen it, but uh, I know that Universal was made a habit of doing that because they, they did the exact same thing with uh, Joseph Losey's uh, secret ceremony, where they had uh, two psychiatrist characters. That the, the, the Universal shot a new new footage where where two psychiatrists are talking about the the behaviors of uh, of of Liz Taylor Mia Farrow and some very uh, dry 
didactic way, um, and uh, they kind of they, they made a really horrible habit around uh, of, of putting in of uh, inserting new footage into TV um, TV TV versions of the of their films in their catalog. Um, uh, I mean, another egregious version, not really in the same league, but uh, um, another egregious uh, example of this is a Two Minute Warning, where they they shot a jewel robbery subplot that never existed in any any version of the film at any point. Um, there's another film too that that they did that too. It's it's not in not in my mind. But I didn't know that they I didn't know that they had done it. The puzzle. I don't remember too many details off the top of my head, but I thought it was maybe Barry Primus and a girl talking to the camera saying that it was all, I, I don't <laughs> like maybe explaining exactly what you're about to see, but oh. I, 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 I don't have the details in front of me and I haven't been able to track down a copy of it myself. But there was something that I guess maybe to prepare the audience. And I, I don't know if Schatzberg was saying something about how it should be apparent to the viewer, everything that this intro was trying to explain in advance anyway. So he felt it was not really helpful or necessary, maybe even a little bit redundant. So, but it was something that was, I guess, forced onto it to make it a little bit more accessible to a general audience. And I don't think you can see it that way now. And it's probably for the best, but I was still curious just for, you know, sake of being a completist to see what they thought would make this more commercial. I have to go out and find, you know, because you've mentioned, or, or I think uh, both of you guys have mentioned the whole idea of Universal having this program of uh, kind of doing more edgy films in the late 60s, early 70s. I want to say Peter Watkins' privilege was part of that as well, and that's another one of those where it's like, I think BFI finally put that one out on DVD, but no one has yet to put it out on Blu-ray no, because of no, no, no. It, it's actually uh, that one is on the that was part of the Project X um, uh, Peter Watkins um, re-release. So it's part of you can get it as part of the box set. I have them individually, but yeah, Privilege is one, and and all the, all the rest. Edward Monk and uh, every, everything except for Evening Land uh, is is included in that. But yeah, so Privilege is commercially available in the U.S. Uh, you can actually get it on Amazon. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a part of that that particular cycle, even though it was a universal picture that the privilege was 1967. But the the, the whole Ned Tannen cycle uh, began in the late 1970. I want to say it began with Diary of a Mad Housewife. It, it included Minnie Moskowitz. They actually they actually got Cassavetes over to uh, Universal to you know, to do Minnie Moskowitz as part of this new slate of pictures following Easy Rider and every you know all the majors were trying to get with it. So uh, last last movie Silent Running Hired Hand thank you Too Late uh, Blacktop Yes thank you and yeah and I, I think those were the original pictures and they they basically dropped the ball on on uh, any any on, on promoting any of them because I guess they well, just didn't like what they saw, so that you know, a lot of them fell between the cracks. Wasn't American Graffiti also part of that cycle, though? That I mean, it's often included on lists that I see, but I I, I feel it's almost erroneous unless there was some delay, which I don't think there was. But but I think American Graffiti was nineteen seventy three, whereas these movies were had been uh, two or three years earlier. Um, yeah, so. I always I always I always associate it with being like the fluke blockbuster that kind of gets grouped in with this much more daring group of films right. like taking off and the hired hand in the last movie. Yeah. I, I always wish that there had been um a box set the way cause it, it feels like the same thing as the BBS situation. BBS. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I always kind of wish Criterion could get the rights for everything and assemble a proper box set to put them all in context, the Ned Tannen uh, you know, slate. But I, I imagine that's a little bit expensive and complicated, especially if you throw in something like the hired hand, I think it's distributed all over the place now. And, and American Graffiti, if that's included, is a whole different animal. I mean, the last of the the BBS, uh, the one that the thing that's always confused me about that box set is they didn't include Hearts and Minds, which was definitely a, a BBS kind of project. I think it was I think it was official, uh, but it wasn't included in that box set. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I think think th- I mean, they have Tulane Blacktop on the label. I mean, and Hired Hand is out on uh, through the, the the Sundance DVD subsidiary. I think uh, I'm not sure if it's out on Blu-ray yet. Taking Off is available in the UK, but it's, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's arrived in the US. I'm pretty sure it hasn't because I'm a big fan of that film, and I would have known. And the last movie I think is a is a holy grail for Criterion lovers, um, but uh, I'm not sure if there are any. I mean, I could email Peter Becker about this, but you know, I don't know. It's yeah. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, it, it, it would make a good box set though. Why don't you go ahead, Daniel? Just drop an email yeah, for yeah, us. For sure. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. What do you want? What do I want? I want to marry Laura. That's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. <laughs> But Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. It's different. It's offbeat. And it's always on target. Yeah. You've heard me. I love your wife. Uh, you show very good taste. It's about temptation. The Lord have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Contemplation. <laughs> adoration. And accusation. Are you seeing someone else? What? It's about deviation. Hi, Mom. And desperation. Don't worry. I'm not going to beg her. Janet. How can I get it as you won't come out of a rainbow? And most of all, Good night, Ox. the outrageous complications night, Laura. of Charles' never-ending infatuation. Good night, Sam. John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt in Chilly Scenes of Winter. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Chilly Scenes of Winter, where Daniel and Bill will return as co-hosts. Until then, what have you been up to, Daniel? Um, a, a couple films. I'm promoting uh, my my book, Sydney J. Fury: Life and Films. Uh, I'm trying to finish my book on Joe Micklin Silver, which we're going to talk about, I guess, next week with uh, the the Chilly Scenes of Winter episode. I'm working on a new film project. Uh, you know, lot, lots going on. You know, it's just uh, very busy. So, and how about you, Bill? How goes all your projects? So last year I did. 13 episodes of my show, Supporting Characters, where I talk to different people that channel their interest in film into some kind of project or vocation, uh, including yourself, um, as well as a lot of people that have been on the projection booth, like Daniel Bird, Heather Drain, Kayla Janice, Sam Deegan, Jim Laskowski, Travis Crawford, Mark Walkow, Eric Bresler. So I'm bringing that show back in uh, March. Uh, I've been uh, 
doing research on my uh, upcoming guests and I should start interviewing people in a couple of weeks, you can get my past episodes on iTunes or at the nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters site. Beyond that, um, I've been doing a little writing. Um, I contributed to a book that's included in the new limited edition uh, Phantasm Blu-ray collection coming out through Arrow Films. That's coming out in April. Been on a couple of other podcasts, too, as a guest. Uh, Film Jive, I was on talking about Let's Get Desk to Death. And uh, Director's Club, I talked about uh, films of 2016. Is there a uh, good place for uh, folks to just keep up with you in general? Uh, just find me on Facebook, and I'll tell you. All right, cool. And how about you, Daniel? Is there a good site for people to keep up with all your um, projects? Confluencefilm.com. Um, I just started a, a um, seven-person filmmaking collective uh, here in, in San Francisco, uh, and you can find us at bricolagefilms.com, uh, B-R-I-C-O-L-A-G-E-films.com. There was just a, a Cinesource uh, magazine article written uh, profiling me, I guess, uh, and it was an, it's a long interview uh, talking about my various endeavors in film and uh, filmmaking and film writing. Um, so I think that's, that's currently, uh, it's in this month's issue, and you can go onto that there, look that up. Uh, it's, it's one of the main, main stories on there now. Pretty sure that's it. And, you know, if you want the, the book on Sunny Fury, it's, you know, there are copies on Amazon. I think at this point you can get it, uh, fairly inexpensively. So you can, you know, pick that up. It's a, you know, my, one of my favorite, uh, uh, you know, filmmakers at a very interesting career and, uh, trying to evangelize his, uh, his life and works. <laughs> Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. And we'll link over to where you can find out more about Daniel and Bill. you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show if things are going well. And I actually happen to get a show done a few days before it is supposed to uh, drop. I will post the link over on Patreon so you can get it early and then lord it over your friends. So please head on over to the site. Every donation, every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.